welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast, and I'm your host, Brendan O'Neill. I'm a Canadian expat living in Phuket, Thailand, and Fruiting Body is a medicinal mushroom company. Our intentions of this podcast is to connect with people living on the island and share their stories with you. This is episode 10 with Sean Stenning from Australia. Sean Stenning is the owner and founder of Five Star Marine. Um, Five Star Marine, they are like a boating company that take people around to different islands in Phuket. Um, since we're in lockdown or under the current situation, he's been uh, involved in a charity with his company and feeding families, not just around Phuket, but also the islands themselves. So we're going to discuss about that and how it all came together. First, Sean, thank you for joining us today. Um, as we kind of discussed before on uh, Fruiting Body Podcast, we like to start with your journey and how you got from Australia to Phuket. Let's piece that together. Take it away, Sean. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm doing boats now, but totally no background in boats. Mm. Completely had no idea about an engine or anything like this. I was actually started in IT. Um, went to university, got an accounting IT degree, come out of that uh, into a startup, uh, had a a great success, sold out and burnt out at the same time yep. and said, okay, I need a break. So I was looking for a beach change and anyone who knows Australia, I was, I was thinking Sunshine Coast, but I thought, all right, well, I'm going to go to Thailand for uh, a couple of weeks holiday first. Uh, came here, uh, walked onto uh, Layanne Beach and said, yeah, this is for me. That was, the, that was uh, January 1st. Said, this is for me. Rang my family and said, not coming home, get rid of my dog. Which uh, year was this? 2012, 11, so or even before that? Even before that. So what are we now? 2021? 2021. <laughs> it's 2050, Sean. <laughs> We've lost track of time. I know, with this COVID, I've, I've given up yeah, writing dates or, date or anything. So yeah. I think it's 15 years now. 15 yeah, 15 years. years. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, as I said, you rang my folks. They took my dog. I had a jet ski, had a car, had a house and said, please, uh, do what you like with it all. Um, uh, I didn't even like when people say I, I gave up and moved to Thailand. It's like, oh, but I went home first and repacked and got rid of, got sorted with my life. And I was like, that's not me. Uh, I spent the first three years here and didn't go home at all. Um, wanted to make that really clean break. So I'd seen a lot of people who said, I'm going to change. I'm going to do a, like a complete lifestyle change, but they go back home and they get sucked back into that old lifestyle. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm going to totally just move here and, didn't go, as I said, didn't go home for three years. I've so been, you stayed the whole time for three years yeah, here? And yeah, yeah, didn't. No just, no visa problem. Obviously, you're not you're not old enough for a retirement visa at <laughs> visa this point. Yeah, well, yeah. lots of visa problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but back then, the problems were less problematic, you yeah. know, like if you overstayed a little bit, they didn't care so much because it wasn't even on a computer back then. It was just, if you overstayed, you, you, you left, you paid your overstay fee, you came back in, uh, you went and got a new passport, uh, and then- off you go, clean, no overstay yeah. in your passport, not on a computer, not a problem. Um, now it's all digital, so it's all a different and, story. And you stayed, so you landed on, you got off the airport, you went to Lion, Lion Beach, you're just staying in a hotel. Did you um, end up staying in this area? Like, what what would we call I, this I, region? Northern Phuket? <laughs> I haven't moved from this area. I I, I started in uh, Outrigger, yep. um, but that back then, it uh, so now it's Sai, right? But yep. it was Outrigger uh, Villas back then, so I just stayed in a villa. Uh, which was in that Layan area. Uh, then I moved from Outrigger, moved to Anantara, moved from Anantara back to Outrigger, Outrigger to Anantara, and now I'm back at Anantara. Uh, mm. So I don't know. I don't. 
I, I, I really fell in love with the area. And then, I, you know, for us, you know, they're like, well, they like, you have a girlfriend, you know, mm -hmm. like, was it the girl that kept you here? And I'm like, well, I am now married to a Thai and I, yes, I do have a, a son, but mm -hmm. all of that was post the decision to, to stay here. It just happened that as you start building your life here, well, you know, those kind of, those kind of bits fall into play. What was it about Thailand? And sorry, I'll make this kind of a two part question because coming from Australia, I'm assuming you've been to Bali. No. Okay. So you, you know, you never got the taste of the typical Aussie. Well, you know, you know like I got to be really honest. My family's like a, a traditional middle-class family. So uh, our, our family holidays were within Australia. Okay. You know, like if we, every year we did two holidays, uh, one was a camping holiday. We'd go maybe like to a river or we would go to, uh, you know, an area that was uh, like bright. I don't know if you know this, but it's a, it's an area in Victoria. It's a, an area where you can go bushwalking. Like, okay. So that was family holiday number one. And then family holiday number two was go to a beach. Yep. And so that was the Sunshine Coast for us. Every year we went and stayed same hotel, same beach, So same you're in area. Victoria, you're flying all the way up? Oh, no, 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 no. Driving. Dri See, I used to live on the Gold Coast for, I lived there for a year. So you're talking about a three-day drive? <laughs> you're talking about a 16-hour drive and my dad's a school teacher, okay. right? So uh, we had all finished school the same day. He'd come home and he's like, Everything in the car. Yeah. So I was like, that Friday that he's finished school, he's in the car and he's driving. Yeah. And there would be no pre-booked hotels or anything. It was just like, we would drive until dad needed to sleep. And I was like, sometimes that was just the side of the road, you know? I was on the, um, the Gold Coast. So I would drive. I only did it once. I went camping up at the Sunshine Coast. And I remember it was raining and it must have been like 9 p.m. at night and like, those roads felt super sketchy at night. I mean, there was shit running on the roads. You had king, some uh, oh, wallabies. Yes. And it's pitch black. It's super slick. I mean, so your dad's just ripping around 16 hours straight coming from Victoria. Yeah, hey, his thing was, is like uh, he's on holiday and he's getting to the Sunshine Coast and onto that beach as soon as he possibly can. Uh, no flights. It's, you know, I think when I was 17 was the first time that we flew, but uh, not everyone in the family flew. It was like, because uh, I think it was, it was exams or something. So I had to fly up. My sister had to fly up. Uh, my mom, dad, brother, they drove. So v Victoria, it's uh, Mel Melbourne, right? So, you know, like uh, everyone who asks me, I say Melbourne because I actually come from a really small country town that no one ever knows about. And it's hard to find yeah. on a map. So we're actually right on the New South Wales Victorian border. So it's not so, not as far, you know, like we're two hours closer to Sydney. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But still, I mean, you're, you're talking to see a 16 hour drive on oh, yeah. Australian yeah. highways, which actually they're not that safe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it used to be dad would be like right on the speed limit until mom fell asleep. And yeah. he'd, he'd inch it faster and faster and faster. Then she'd wake up and he'd inch back again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I had that ride, ride in. Yeah, it was super sketchy. So you, was this your kind of your, your first taste of the beach life the sunshine coast is this what kind of did this drive you to thailand that you wanted to try that lifestyle or what actually drove you to thailand yeah i think it was actually i really love those family holidays they're they're a great memory for for us as as kids and i really just wanted to go back to that time um yeah. where it was relaxed it was peaceful you know you'd go surfing you'd go swimming you know you'd walk around bare feet and when i when i sold out of the company that I was in, uh, you know, we were working 
20 hour days, was seven this, days a uh, week. This was Geekversity? Yeah. Geekversity. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, there, there was a clip on, on YouTube. I saw you were on, uh, you looked, uh, you had a tie on all fancy. You, you're probably man. familiar of this clip. Yeah, I don't want to watch this anymore. Yeah. I'm like, my, yeah. my gosh, what I was happened? young. What did I say? So, so what was this uh, company all, all about? Uh, essentially, we were selling uh, a product that allowed people to create automated uh, website systems. Oh. Um, and the product was okay, was, was okay, but the success of the company was so fast. Mm. Um, you know, we went from zero to... About eighteen million in sales in six months. Wow! Um, and the we had these mass hiring events where we would bring twenty people into a room and just hire them all um, yeah. because we couldn't keep up with what was going on, and it was just stressful. It was really, really stressful, and that that's that's what drove me to the beach. I think it was like I just got to change my life because mm. uh, if I kept going down this path, like uh, anyone who's in technology would say, it's a seven day a week job. You know, if you're not coding. You're, you're doing business and business in my technology business was done in the bars, yeah. you know? So it was like eight, nine, you know, even when I sold my company, it was a deal done in a bar at 10 o'clock at nine. Yeah. Okay. The lawyers come in the next day and start to clean up the deal. But the actual concept of what we were selling was, was all done, you know, mm -hmm. in a bar. And I was like, I just can't, I didn't want this life, you know, yeah, I, I didn't want it. It's uh, especially in the computer science world it's it's constantly changing you always got to be on the forefront and i mean if if you're not coding and improving you're maintaining so it's a never-ending gig yeah yeah and look and i also think you know anyone who would talk to me about like why did you decide to stay and it's like you know i looked at my my parents i love them and sure they're, they're watching this and it's no offense calling us middle class family you know no. it's like uh they worked really really hard to pay off a mortgage and put their kids through school and buy a car and i always felt like it was like they were chasing the next step and it's mm -hmm. like i wanted a clean break of not just you know going to a beach but i just wanted to clean break from from that kind of life full stop. Yeah, and that, that middle lifestyle, uh, I think my parents are probably middle, maybe upper middle, but it's kind of uh, hand to mouth a little bit where you're every month you're kind of, you're paying your car, you're paying your mortgage, you're paying your insurance, but at the end of the month, there's not much left saved over, let's say. Yeah, yeah. And like at these family holidays that we did every year up to the beach, it was like mom and dad had a budget. Yeah. And once we hit that budget, you know, that was it. Time there's to go like, home. there's a, Let's go home. It's like, and my mom and dad were very, very credit adverse, you know, so there's no credit cards. They don't want a loan. It's like, yeah. and, you know, my dad was a school teacher, but after school, he'd be doing extra stuff to, to make money. My mom worked in a pharmacy. She would finish and then go work in a restaurant. And we knew that their after work jobs were to pay for our holidays. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, they just call it, it's their, it's their holiday money. So they're working so hard. We're not really seeing them a lot. And I'm just like, I don't want that life. And at this this time, I mean, how did you get into the computer science background? Because I'm, we're probably close to the same age, but from what I remember at, at that point in time, um, computers were new, the internet was new. I mean, even your T1 connections, this was all new. All new. So uh, a lot of kids from that generation were just getting into the online gaming. And from that, that's what led to them going into computer science at university. Is this similar to your path? So I... I made a decision about what career I wanted to go into based on what I didn't want my life to be like. So mm -hmm. uh, certainly it was expected in my family that I was going to be a teacher. You know, that was, that was what uh, mum and dad thought. I was good at sports. I mean, my dad's a PE teacher. And it was like 
expected that I was going to go be a PE teacher. And I'm like, the in my circle of family, um, the wealthiest person in my circle of family was an accountant. Okay. So in school, I studied accounting, I studied economics, I wanted to go and be an accountant. Um, and when I was talking with my uncle who, who was an accountant, because I, I wanted a different life, you know, I wanted a different level of wealth in my life and he was the role model to follow. So when I was talking to him, he's like, you should do a double degree. He's like, you should do accounting and IT. He's like, if you deal with double degree, that's going to be even further your economic uh, situation. And so I went to, I went to university in accounting IT. I worked as an intern in my uncle's accountant firm. And I actually found out in university, I really hated accounting because all you were doing was counting other people's money and showing them how they can minimize their tax. Yeah. And, you know, and he set out for me this, uh, this career path. And he's like, so you're going to be an intern. And then once you get uh, accredited, you're going to be a junior accountant. Then you're going to be a senior accountant. And then you're going to be a partner. And the real money is when you're a partner. But when you're a partner, you have to work really long hours. I'm like, this really does not yeah. sound like a cool life, you know? Yeah, yeah. And like as an intern, I'm sitting there doing tax accounting for – you know, in Australia, we, uh, his accounting firm was doing tax accounting from some very well-known Australians, and I knew what salary was I was on, and I knew how much money I was saving them, and I was sitting there going, "Yeah, this is this is not cool." So I yeah. followed the IT path, um, and that I stumbled I, through IT. I had no background in IT. I wasn't a gamer at home. You know, mm. you know, Chuka, we had dial-up internet, and uh, it's just I fell that way for money. Really, I felt that you way felt for like money. There, there could have been this. Could have been that the the path to prosperity if you went down the computer science path. Correct. Yeah, I just really felt like I, you know, I love my folks, but they struggled. Yeah, they struggled, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to bring a family up through struggles. So I mm -hmm. thought I'm gonna I'm gonna follow this IT path. I'm gonna follow this accounting path because it's different. Uh, and the people I knew in my life were successful and rich down this path. And I was like. That's what I wanted, you know. And now that once you, you've got into your own business, I'm 100% sure you saw the value of that accounting experience. Because I, I, I do some operations stuff. Um, I have some other electronics business manufacturing stuff that I do. Yes, I took some accounting courses, but I also managed the accounting on my side. And that's kind of one thing I wish I had a better uh, um, um, school of thought behind is accounting. And I'm sure like, that has probably added a lot of value in your future business endeavors. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the IT degree allowed me to get into the IT business, but without the understanding of the accounting degree, the understanding of how business works and how it operates and the P&L, yeah. you know, I think there's some amazing coders, but they're never going to be really wealthy people because they don't understand the business side of why they're writing code. Exactly. You know, if you can understand the business side of what you're writing, I think that's the, mo that's the, the, the best thing that you can do. And I think, you know, as I now continue in my business life, I, line, I lean more on the accounting degree than I do on the uh, yep. IT degree. And I don't think I would have been able to survive COVID if I didn't know how to lean on the accounting degree. And that, that can be applied to any form of business, especially people who are specialists in their, their school of thought, whether you're a nutritionist or you're a, a private trainer or you're opening up a Muay Thai gym. Leaning on the accounting side, it's going to be your foundation, I think, to run any business. Yeah, yeah. You know, you need your budget, you need your P&L, you need to understand the, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're going to go and sell a company, you got to understand, you know, like your, your EBITDA, you got to understand all this kind of yeah. stuff. And uh, without the accounting degree, I'd have no concept of any of that. Kind and of nobody stuff. understands this EBITDA or EBITDA. 
you know, I yeah. actually think on my end, I, if you were to put my coding skills next to anyone else, I would be the worst coder in the room. Yeah. But the reason that I think the, our technology was com a company was successful was because I understood the business concept of yeah. what we were trying to do. And you could at least speak the language to the coders to give them some direction as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was that was the upside. Yeah. It's like I, I was the guy that understood the business, but also could speak the language, yeah. and I could pick up if someone was trying to tell me that their code could do something that it they can't. probably can't do. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't have the ex experience, someone, and you're just say like a venture capitalist or just investing, that coder could bullshit you and you would have no idea. Yeah. 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 And that's how it works in this yeah. world now. You know, it's like yeah. a lot of coders are telling you that their code could make your computer fly, but like you got to go and look and say, well, does it really do that? Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. You can kind of read through the bullshit. You can't, well, for me, you can't bullshit a bullshitter, but that's just to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um. Well, we've talked enough about accounting. I think we don't want to bore the, I yeah, love, yeah, I love this stuff. Now. I love this stuff, but. Um, especially on the business side and, and um, gaining experience from other people's experience in the business and how they grew their businesses. But um, what our listeners and what we're interested, all our four listeners are interested in <laughs> is um, we're interested in how did you actually, how did you choose Thailand as that destination before coming to Thailand? Did, did you have any other considerations, Philippines, uh, Indonesia, why Thailand and specifically why Phuket? So this is a, a unique aspect to my story. Um, as I said, family holidays all in Australia. We did one family holiday to Fiji. That was the first time I ever flew internationally. The second international flight uh, that I took on a that was not business related, so on a holiday was to Phuket, um, and that was the flight that decided never to go home again. Okay. Um, so did I research Phuket? No. No. Uh, did I research other locations? Philippines, Indonesia? No. I had a I had a friend who was in Phuket. He messaged me and said, you should come to Phuket. And I said, okay. Yeah. Um, but it just happened. You know, here's this the uncanny nature of the world that we live in. In university, uh, I went to university when the tsunami hit um, over here. 2004, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was in university. I was on the student association. Uh, and we decided that we were going to run a, a fundraiser in university to help the victims of the tsunami. Mm -hmm. So we ran a tsunami appeal. And in university, how do you run fundraisers? You run parties. Uh, so we did the very first ever 24-hour party. Um, so we got special permission from the police. We had all these sponsors giving us free alcohol, giving us free buses, free food. And we charged people an entry fee, all of the university students an entry fee. And we raised something like 200000 Australian dollars. Oh, wow. Um, still got the little award from the uh, dean of the university that says that. Uh, and I sent all that money to the Red Cross in Phuket. Uh, didn't know where Phuket was on the map back then, you know, yeah. like cause student association, we just, we just party. That's all we do, you yeah. know, like, and, uh, I didn't even, I couldn't find it on a map. And then it's turned out I ended up here. Um, and then the story combines now that, you know, uh, I live here. Um, so maybe somewhere in the subconscious, the brain was saying, yeah, go, to Phuket. Yeah, go to yeah. Phuket. Yeah. Um, go see what you, you know, what you, you looked at supporting, but how many years after that, this charity event you were running, did you actually end up making that first trip? Only a few years. Only a few years. Yeah. yeah so not, not, not a big gap. Yeah. I think it was a, you know, a subconscious connection. But if you ask me, did I consciously decide I wanted to go there? No, it was, I had a friend that was here, messaged me, said, let's come over to Phuket. Let's hang out on the beach. Yeah. 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 And then what you, you got to Phuket, you're in, in the, so we're in the Northern part of Phuket. Now this podcast is at a, uh, Surin Beach. I don't know if we want to give that information away. Don't find us. Don't come knock on our door. <laughs> um, but uh, 
you're a bit north kind of uh, Lyanne. I'm going to say 20 minutes, but we're still anything. I say anything north of Kamala is I call it like north of Patong because even Kamala, in my opinion, is kind of Patong in some sense. But um, when you came and you landed in, in Phuket, you're coming for this relax, uh, relax and, you know, uh, maybe self-actualization self and just getting away from that corporate life or that, you know, that stressful business. Did you have any plans in mind of what you were going to do or did you just try to come with a clean slate and see where it went? I was in a transitional phase of my life where I had a little bit of money that allowed me to not have to worry about what the next thing was. So I came to Phuket and did what everyone does when they come to Phuket first time, just lived in the moment, you know, yeah. to, I wanted to go to the beach, I'd go to the beach. I wanted to go drinking, I'd go drinking. And, you know, back in those days uh, on Layan Beach, it's a six kilometer beach. There was bars all along the beach. The thing to do as an expat back then was you'd start uh, right up at the Layan National Park and you would drink your way along the beach. Uh, mm. at every beach bar that you could get to and hope that you could get to the other end and then come home, you know? And so that was why I, I think I did that for the first month. I, I didn't know there's, there's actual, I moved here in 2016, so they must've ripped all those beach bars. Oh off. yeah. All down, man. Really? All so that down. whole, all of Lyon from it's cause it's, it's no, let's call it Northern bank tower. Right. So starting the, the North, most Northern point would be like what we called Nikki Beach or Dream Beach. So Dream Beach, you you would drive your motorbike down, park at Dream Beach. Dream Beach wasn't there. Nick, was Nikki Beach there at that Nikki time? Nikki Beach wasn't there. Okay. And you would walk down and it would be beach huts. Yeah. You know, so beach huts, they'd have, uh, you know, a few beers and maybe they'd have a Bacardi Breezer. There was no cocktails or anything. It was just beer and, you know, mixes. Anything bottled wise. Yeah, yeah. anything bottled. And, you know, at that time, you know, it, it was... It was pre, you know, the the woke generation. So there was elephants on the beach drinking beer, and they'd be swimming in the in the sea. Really? And yeah, yeah, yeah. This was this was the the scene that I walked into. And was you could, it huts or like any proper foundations? No, no, all huts. All yeah, huts. Yeah, all huts. Oh wow! And so you would just like go from beach hut to beach hut to beach hut, and maybe you'd sit and have a few beers with the the local locals at each of the beach huts. And yeah. Just try and roll your way to the end, and along the way, you'd pick up a restaurant and pick up some Thai food. And so, what happened to that? Did someone come in? Did they clear it out? Did they move away? Well, you know, like uh, when they did the the last uh, coup, right? Yeah. So the so last, what's what was that? Two about when you came, right? About two sixteen, two seventeen. When there they was did the a, last coup? there was a couple of them. There was I, I used to play ice hockey uh, in Bangkok, and I actually I was living in China, so I would go to to Bangkok to play. I think the first time I went, or the time there was a queue, I think it it might have been 2014 or 15. It was the first one where like everything was shut at midnight. Yes. And then that slowly went. So the, um, that must have been 2015, I'm guessing. Yeah. So when that coup came in, one of the promises of the, what do you call a coup leader? Whatever, yeah, they, whatever yeah. they're called. One of these promises was, I'm going to give back the beaches to the Thais. Because all these beach huts are, are, are on public land. Yeah. So it's all illegal, right? Uh, so he said he's going to come in and clean the beaches. Mm -hmm. So he went in with diggers and they went in with bulldozers and they knocked all this stuff down. Oh, so this is the time even at Surin Beach when they knocked all this. That's the same time or a bit uh, later? So Surin survived a little while. So okay. if, you, if you know the local story, right, when the tsunami hit um, – a lot of the governments were given money to help the Thais to get back into business and start up again, right? So a lot of those buildings that were on Surin Beach, why they're on illegal land, they were paid for by the local government. 
mm. right? And so they survived a little bit longer than what a lot of other places did because there was this little loophole around we're trying to help tsunami families get back on their feet. We, we don't want to knock down the building that we used maybe internationally donated funds for. And so mm. there's, a, there's a, some logistics around this that they had. And this, this is why, you know, when I, when I first came here, I don't, I, I don't know what it was like pre-tsunami. I don't know if there were all these buildings on the beaches pre-tsunami. But I know post-tsunami that a lot of families were given the right to just go build on public land as a way to try and survive post-tsunami. Um, even my wife's family is the same. You know, she used to have a tour shop right on the beach, and that was a, a post-tsunami gift from the government that allowed them to do this, you know. So they, the government did the brick and mortar, and, the brick and then and they mortar. didn't have to pay the the rent. Didn't have to pay rent, yeah. you know. They paid, they paid just light and power. Got it. Um, yeah, because it's government land anyways. Correct. Yeah. And so uh, when the coup came through, they, would, they went and knocked all this down. Um, and that's why a lot of these, these, these beaches uh, have, have changed and you know the restaurants we i don't know if you you know it's called Sinal, but outrigger uh Sai can yeah. access straight to the beach yeah but going back maybe four or five years you couldn't access the beach from from Sai or outrigger it was ah. it was shops all the way along so local restaurants yeah. local bars local uh clothing retailers and that's kind of like at pig beach where that connects yeah, yeah yeah so all of that that whole area there was all ah, just thai okay. shops all the way gotcha. it, you could like if you were doing a, a beach bar hop along yeah. that beach, that that one kilometer would knock you out, you know, because it was like bah, 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 bah. But it seems like it's starting to make a comeback now. Um, if you, there's, a, there's Beach Pig, I think it's called. That, yes. And that area has been there forever, but it seems like it's uh, coming to life. There's been about three or four different Farang uh, bars and restaurants that have opened up right in that corner. It's interesting, like if you if you keep up with uh, what's happening locally now in that area, it's like uh, Tony's restaurant right now is is scheduled for demolition. Oh, really? Um, and this is based on the coop order, you know. Now, finally, trying to it's worked its way all through the courts, and they said, okay, it's legal, knock it down. Um, about six months ago, uh, next to Sai, there used to be a group of shops there. Yep. Uh, they've just knocked all that down about six months ago. Uh, you know, is Beach pig going to be here six months from now? Let's wait to see. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I heard about Tony's getting knocked down maybe even a year or more ago they were supposed to, and then it just didn't happen. So so Tony has rebuilt that shop, I think, like 10 times. He keeps getting knocked down and rebuilt, knocked yeah. down and rebuilt. Yeah, because Hugo Hutt was beside it. Yes. Uh, but Hugo, he was telling us, he was on the podcast, he said he uh, they'll be back there. He said they've, they've re-signed for the land, so whatever that means. But he was also explaining to us that um, when he was cleaning up Hugo Hutt and he was going to build it, there was a foundation under that, under that land, which means he thinks there is something there maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. Look, uh, as I said, I don't, I don't know too much pre tsunami, what was being built on those beaches. I know what I experienced when I walked, walked on that beach first day. Yeah. And like, as someone looking to, you know, completely change their life, like a, a month of just bar hopping along a beach sounded like a really good idea. Yeah. And you you said the, the the coup came in to give it back to the ties, but that, yes. I'm a bit confused on that because aren't the ties using it? So then you're, you're taking it away. So what do you mean? Yeah. So the concept was it's like, well, this one family has a shop on the beach, and that's not fair, mm. right? Because this beach is owned by every type of well, it's owned by the king, but oh, okay. technically every Thai person has a right to this beach. So why can this one family profit from it? Okay. So let's knock it all down, and no one can profit from it. Mm. Um, and that was the the whole concept of the campaign. And 
you know, during this time, they were talking about, well, whatever, we just give 10% of a beach space to, to commercial activities. So I, I don't know if you were here during the period where you would walk along a beach and it would be like clean beach, okay, and then it was, okay, now there's all these sunbeds in this special zone. Yeah. And then in that zone, they were selling food and beer, and then it was clean beach again. Yeah. Okay, that was part of them trying to appease the locals by saying, we're not going to destroy everything. You can we'll give a you a little bit. But, you know, now it's kind of like, well, that whole concept's gone. gone. Yeah, it's out the door. Yeah, now. it's out the door now. And, well, it's hard to say with, uh, we won't say the C word on here because we're afraid YouTube's going to shadow ban us. So we'll call it the current situation. <laughs> um, with the current situation, who's to say what will happen in the next year? What What do you think is going to happen in the next year in terms of tourism, redeveloping? And I, I think even CoPP is a, a good spot uh, as a, Almost a, a great benchmark of whatever is going to happen there is probably going to carry over here because pretty much that whole island shut down and all those businesses are done. So when this place opens up again and the tourists flood in, who's rebuilding in Kopp? Who's rebuilding in these places like Kata, Karan, where all the shops have shut down? What do you see happening? Well, that's a good question. It's a tough question to answer yeah. as well, because as a tourism business, we want to put out a positive message and say, you know, we expect in the next 12 months that those who do come to Phuket are going to see it like never before. They're going to have an amazing experience and they're going to see it like we've seen it for the last 12 months. Uh, and we do hope that sustainably it's going to rebuild. But I think, you know, the reality of the economic situation here is going to be if the tourists do come like in a flood then everyone's going to be running as fast as they can to get a business open yeah. um, and make some money because we've all been losing money as, as, as crazy as possible. You know, I, heaps of my friends are like, I really hope that they don't do group tours again. They don't do mass tourism. They limit the numbers. I'm like, you know, you, you don't see what's closed here. You know, like Phuket needs mass tourism yeah. to, to get back on its feet. You know, like that's the only way. And what's going to come with mass tourism It's going to come with reef destruction. It's going to come with all these negative side effects that were, that we've all seen has changed in the last 12 months. So I don't know the next 12 months, what's it going to bring? I, I think if you ask me today and then you also ask me tomorrow, I'd give you two different answers. Um, because I, day by day, everything is changing. You know? Yeah. I, I honestly think that a lot of these shop owners, let's say, I mean, you've probably dri driven through, uh, Karang Kata, and it's it's de devastating. It's a ghost yes. town. My my guess is the owners of those businesses have probably gone back to Isan or or their wherever they're from. And I think when the doors open, that if they had a shop there before, I'll throw a number out there: seventy percent of them will probably knock back on the door of the landlord, reopen shop, and rebuild it because it's pretty easy to turn the key if you've been doing it for twenty years. If, if that was a place selling beers and popsicles and, you know, trinkets, I mean, it's quick for them to source and get the product and open the shop. It might take a couple months, but it's easier than like, well, let's put something completely different in here. Yeah, I, my, my, my gut tells me that maybe these, these uh, developed stores that we see now are going to go back to the old fashioned version of, you know, bamboo beach huts. You know, yeah. they're going to do the least capital intensive way to start up again. Yeah. And it might be back to what I experienced when I first come where everything, you know, like the Surin built up really big, you know, like they had some beautiful uh, beach clubs and everything. But when I first came here, it was all bamboo, you know, it was 
and over time as they got success and made money, they started to build real buildings. And then as they got more successful, they expand, expand, expand. So I think we're going to go back to the least capital intensive way to restart a business. Yeah. And then as it grows with success, then they'll start putting real foundations down and that's how it's going to work. Yeah, that, that makes, that probably makes more sense because if you come back and, and, and you're not spending all this money on the brick and mortar and you can get this thing opened up. And I mean, for Thai people to build bamboo huts, they can do that in a couple of weeks. Yeah. You're rock and rolling. And it's, there's a bit of insurance on that. What if the C word comes back? What well, if something a, happens? Also on that end, they're not, they're not having to hire people to do exactly. it. You know, like they can yeah, put it together. They can put it together themselves, yeah. you know, like that, that cool guy at the bar selling you the beer. He, 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 he can build that bar, yeah. you know? Okay, once it turns to brick and mortar, he can't. But like to build it with a bit of bamboo, or you know, that's how he's going to start. You know, I think I think that's okay. I think that's how it's going to happen, and and maybe that's cool because uh, that would that would for me reminisce back to some of the memories of what Phuket was really what like when yeah it used well, to be. Well, there are some places that it's still like that. Um, we had a couple. Uh, we did some this Muay Thai and mushrooms thing. It was a kind of an event, kind of a charity as well to give. Um, put on a Muay Thai show in February. It was the first Muay Thai show um, probably in about a year. And we were thinking, okay, let's get the trainers from the Phuket gyms to come into this uh, show. So we did four fights so that we can give them money. We can get some content and it's a win-win for everyone. But the point of that story is we were down in Nyharn at a hidden location. Uh, I don't want to give it give away because it's, it's amazing. But when you go there, it's, it's kind of between nine, it's between, I guess it's between Kata and on, on the road on to the Nyharn, road, on the road to Nyharn, yeah. that like back road through Kata though, it's back in there. And when you went on that land, everyone that came on that, and, and even for myself, it probably felt like what Phuket was 20 years ago. And when you get that feeling, you can also get that in Copenhagen. There's a few spots. That's Thailand to me. Yeah, I agree. Like that feeling. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was messaging, I had a customer go on our boat yesterday and then they messaged me how happy they were. And I said to them, look, you know, the one thing that the reason that the whole reason I built my company, Five Star Marine was because I wanted them to experience Phuket in a way that through my eyes, you know, okay. it was like. I spent so so long here exploring islands. It's like I want. They're like oh, we can tell your staff love their job. I'm like, well, one of the reasons that I stayed here is because the authenticity of the Thai people. You know, it's like uh, a lot of. Uh, I feel like that when I was here first is that they they really loved having the foreigners here. They really loved having having the tourists here. Maybe over time some of that love went away, but now that we've had a break, maybe maybe it's going to reinvent itself and it's going to be back to that point. And you know, it's like they're like. For me, I, I, I really do hope that when they rebuild the industry here in Phuket, that they, they take some pointers from what it was like 20 years ago. Because mm -hmm. that's the thing that's going to bring the tourists back. And reestablish, get that feeling back get, where it's a bit more rustic. Uh, yeah, less commercially orientated, less commercial, you know. Which is important. You know, it's like even I, I, I run my business, we're a big business now, but we run it like a family business, yeah. you know. and. We want them to feel that love. We want them to know that our staff are loved and that our staff love their jobs. And they're not doing it because they're getting paid. They're doing it because this is truly what they want to do. So you, you land in Phuket around two, is it, uh, 2009, 2010? Yeah, around then. Okay. And then around, uh, if I'm correct, around 2011, 2012, you start Five Star Marine. So uh, I start a version of Five Star Marine. Is, is this the first thing you started or is there, was there something a little bit before that or anything? Or you just... No. 
I got bored of how, how, on the beach. Yeah, how, how did this come together, this this uh, business idea? So I, I, that that's where you, you meet my wife. So uh, uh, I met my wife on that beach. She had a tour shop on that beach. On land? Yeah, okay. on, uh, on that beach. Her family uh, had a sh- shop. I bought my first private boat from her. Um, and I would go to her shop most days, you know, uh, when we were in that dating stage and when we got married, I'd go to the shop most days and chat with the customers and talk about where they're going to go. And it just came that I really started to love that. You know, I, I was missing that connection with the, with, with foreigners. And so at her shop, I really had that connection. And so I started to sell private boats from her shop and then I would go on the boat with them, you know, just like, it was fun. I really loved going on the sea. And then when I started going on the boat, I'm like, Oh, you know, well, that guy, he doesn't really know where to go anymore. Like I've been to PP a hundred times, you know, he's going to take me to Maya Bay with every other boat. And I started to, to, to formulate ways of running tours where we could miss crowds and ways of doing experiences. Yeah. Whereas like I could start showing them the parts that I, cause I got to see PP in low season and in high season, it's like, oh, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. This is not even beautiful. Show. It's yeah. not even beautiful, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, the first evolution of five star Marine was just, didn't even have a brand and didn't have a name. I was just this guy on the beach with his wife who would go on a boat with you and you'd rent a private boat from him and you'd have a different experience. So, so you, you purchased the boat off her and you, you have her shop. And oh gosh, no, we didn't even purchase boats back then. I didn't know anything about a boat renter, man. We just hired them. We leased them. Were they speed boats? Yeah. Speed boats. Uh, what was the motor you guys were using then? Uh, Yamaha's. Yamaha's. Yeah. And so the horsepower. Was, 250s. Two two fifties. Yeah. And you would take that, uh, people on tours from, was the jump off Lyon or were you going no, off? Richa, we, we, uh, we go across the island, gotcha. um, go across the island, jump off piers like yeah. uh, Yamu or Boat Lagoon, things like this. Uh, and again, like we were renting boats because I had no idea about a boat. You know, uh, I wanted someone else to manage that problem. Um, but we were getting so successful through word of mouth. You know, we didn't have a Facebook page, a website. It's just go to, they, they just knew our shop location. They text their friend and like, go out the front of Outrigger. There's a guy there. His name's Sean. Yep. Go on a boat with him. Um, so we started to, 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 you know, get a lot of referral word of mouth businesses. And year after year, customers would come back and back and back. And I started having never ending problems with people that I'd renting boats from. You yep. know, like only people, only expats would know these problems. You know, it's like, uh, I was renting so many private boats from this one company that he would, he would, I'd ring him and say, all right, tomorrow we want to go pee pee. And he's like, my captain's tired. He doesn't want to go. Sorry. You can't rent my boat. I'm like, really? You don't, you don't want money. Money's no. money's not a good thing for you. He's like, nah, my captain's tired. He doesn't want to go. So I was like, now I'd have to go find another company and I'd have to teach them my program, my service, manage the problem. You know, it's like both. I'd have these headaches, you know, I'd turn up a pier and I'd tell the, tell the, the boat owner, I need the boat at the pier 830. Mm-hmm. And I would turn up the pier nine, you know, because I tell them 30 minutes beforehand, just to make sure they're out on time. I turn up the pier at nine. I'm like, not there. Where's my boat? <laughs> Typical. That's uh, okay. I'd ring that boat owner. And he'd be like, uh, the captain's not awake yet. Uh, I'm like, can you wake him? No. I mean, so I'm standing here at a pier with my customer, mm-hmm. sold a private boat. They're expecting a private boat. We've got nothing. Um, and so I got to this point where I needed to manage away these risks because it was starting to affect my brand. 
You know, and at this point, I didn't have Five Star Marine as a brand. It was just my personal, that guy on the beach. There's no name to the company. No, no name to you the company. You didn't want to give it a name, kind of like finding a new puppy. You didn't want, <laughs> like, what was the reason? Just. Because it was so natural. You gotcha. know, it was yeah. just natural We're, growth, I'm you know. Guy. Yeah, I got you. And, you know, it's like, it's not like I sat down and said, I'm going to start a private boat business. It's just like, I tripped into it because I loved going on a boat. And if I sold someone to go on a boat, uh, it just felt natural that I would go on the boat with them, you know? Um, and then, you know, we just slowly grew. It's just organic growth out of this point. And the motivation, not obviously at this point, there's no money was not motivation. No, uh, it was purely, I wanted, I wanted to go on the sea Yeah, and I wanted to go on the sea as much as possible because I loved it. I really do. If you say to me, what's my happy place on the sea? Okay. You know, I, I want to be on a boat, rain, Big waves, small waves, sun, I don't care. It's, I find it very peaceful. You know, if you're having a, a bad head day, go on a boat. I say to anybody, if you're having a, like a mentally tough time, go to the sea for a day. You know, that, just it's just going to clear your mind, you know, like it's you, it's the water, and that's it, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, back then the internet, uh, your reception wasn't great, so I'd just go on a boat for a day and I'd have no phone, no yeah, at think, least you, you, know, you can disconnect because at a yeah. certain point when you get out there, the service dies anyways. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, you're forced to disconnect. And yeah. that, that was that was the cool part that I loved about being on the sea. And at the same time, you know, like for me, it was like a lot of my customers were Aussie. So I, mm -hmm. I was on a boat with Aussies and, you know, we're just having a great time together. And it just felt like a, a natural extension of, of having a great time in Phuket. And I got to show them things that I loved. And, you know, it was just great mateship, you know, it was mm -hmm. great mateship. Um, but, you know. Things started to get to a point where uh, I needed to manage at risk. You know, I, I could I I could tell you some of the headaches I've had with boats. You know, I've had boats catch fire. I've had engines blow up. I've had them run out of fuel. I've had captains get arrested on an island because maybe they're not a captain, but I didn't know. They didn't and, have the proper license. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're sitting there on a private boat and your captain's going to jail and you're like. How, how am I getting you the, home? The police are pointing to you going. You could drive it home. I'm like, I don't have a license. You know, what, what do you mean? I could drive yeah. it home. Um, so I was like, I really got to get in and fix some of these problems. And that's when the, I think I, you know, I took those early stages of the business just to rejuvenate, you know, mm -hmm. just to rebuild that passion for business again. And when I started thinking about this commercially and started thinking, I got to manage some of these problems away. That's the business brain ticking back in saying I'm recharged yeah. Yeah. Let's let's actually make a real business out of this. Let's stop playing. Let's 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 make an investment. So, you know, that's when we started buying boats. Um, I bought my first boat. So, how many years after you're? Because at this point, it's it's long, it's like a passion hobby. It's a long time. How I many years were you? I spent eight years learning everything about this business. About eight years, kind of. Uh, yeah, passion hobby at this point. Yeah. Before turning it into a. A real business beyond the hobby side. Yeah, you know, like I would go on this, I'd go on the boat, I'd meet the captain, I'd meet the engineer. But my my passion was about giving the customers who would buy a great time, but also learning everything I could about the sea. Yes. I knew nothing about a tide. I didn't know that in high tide you could go some places and low tide you couldn't go other places. I didn't know about a wind. I didn't know about watching a weather map. I didn't understand anything about how much fuel, but I, I was learning so much every day and mm -hmm. – uh, you know, I think a lot of the, the companies that I was hiring boats from had this, no concept that a foreigner would go on a boat and care how much fuel it used. You know, it's like those were things that I loved. You know, it's like uh, because I had so many bad experiences of boat running out of fuel in the sea, it taught me to know how much fuel every boat needed 
on every engine type to go on every to tour back. type. Because all I was trying to do was manage the problem that I could get to the boat in the morning with my customer and I'd go to the captain and I'm like, how much fuel on your boat this morning? He's like, 300 liters. I'm like, uh, you know, we're doing PP. You, you, you need 330. Yeah. You know, you're 30 liters short. And he's like, the boss gave me 300 liters. So we go with 300 liters. I'm like, but we're 30 liters short. And he's like, you have to change your program. You know, we can go to PP, but we can't go to some of these stops because we need to save fuel. You can't fuel, fuel up quick there or is, <laughs> is it complicated? You know, it's a, again, some private boat business owners don't care how much money you pay them for the boat. They care just about, you know, how they, it's a different way of running their business. Yeah. You know, I, I run my boats different. I run my boats full. So a, a fuel tank on my boat takes 450 liters. Yep. And then I run two spares. So every boat on the sea that Five Star puts out got a minimum of 510 liters on the boat. Um, no other boat in Phuket does this. Mm -hmm. They give enough fuel to complete the tour exactly. And is that, I, 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 this podcast, we never want to talk. It's, you, people need to understand, we're not talking bad about the ties in any which way because we live here. This is our, it's our home, but it's more the experience. So at any point of these podcasts, it's not, it's not whinging it's actually like g giving our experience on what's happening here and w the the whole point of that little spiel there is this can be reflected i find like in the thai mentality where putting enough fuel in your tank it's kind of how they live everything here i find it's very hand to mouth yes everything is hand to mouth and again like if you're renting a private boat it's quite possible like when you when you rent a private boat uh on a lease i pay a i pay a 50 percent deposit the day before and I pay 50% at end of tour. So it's quite possible that he didn't have the cash available to get, the, to get 330 liters. Exactly. You know, he had cash to get 300 liters. So that's as far as my deposit went. That's as much fu as fuel he put on the boat. Yeah. And your deposit, and the rest is just, that's in his pocket. Yeah. 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 And, and again, like you, you've been here long enough, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, in my industry, especially it's hand to mouth, you know, yep. in high season, they're living a great life. And in low season, they're struggling around to get fuel, you know, they're, they're really, really struggling. This is why when the C word hit here in Phuket, the marine industry was devastated within two months. Yes. You know, it's, uh, people say, well, how can a business go broke so fast? Well, I'm like, well, none of these, none of these, they're not a commercial business. It's a family business. There's, there's no tourists. And, and let, let's, that's a good segue into this and into your charity. Um, my assumption as well is that let's say uh, by these piers, these are where the boats are. And these communities and these villages, they rely on the, the marine tourists, let's say, because probably in that village, you have a guide, you have a captain, and you have engineers, and you have people that are maybe working food and restaurant. So if there's no tourists, how do those people work? Is, is this kind of, I'll, I'll just let you run with that and explain how that all came together. It does. It's like the, every pier in Phuket is like its own little mini economy, yes. you know, like uh you want to talk, say, Bungrong Pier. This is a local pier, okay? From this local pier, they run transfers to Yao Yai, Yao Noi, uh, and this little pier, the whole town is built around this pier. And if they don't have the, their transfer boats going every day to Yao Noi and Yao Yai and back, and they're not buying fuel from the local petrol station and the uh, captain isn't there and they're not buying f food and like, the whole economy falls over. Even that little market there before you get on the Benrong Pier, there's a lady selling chips and pop. Yeah, and yeah. 
all of that is reliant on the fact that this boat is going to take 30 tourists six times a day to yell, 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 noy, back and forward, back and forth, back and forth. And once that stops, that whole economy is, is this, mm. what else is there, man? You know, like you, you go Yamu, okay. Yamu is very similar style of pier to Bangrong. Yamu is like the, the group tour pier, right? This is where a lot of the group tours go to. Once group tours stop, what does this pier do? Nothing. What does this community around this pier do? Nothing. So what did you see? I mean, because obviously now this affected your business. When the current situation hit, was it almost like an off switch? Like, and I'm going to guess, yeah. so this would have been probably the off switch would have happened around end of March, even maybe Early. end of April. Earlier. And well, because Chi China New Year, this there were still people coming because I remember China New Year, I went to CoPP and came back and it was packed. But right after CoPP, Sorry, right after CoPP at the end of China New Year, that's when, because I had uh, people working here and they had to get back into China or they couldn't get back in. People that were working with us. So I felt like around February is when I saw the, the switch. So I say, I say against my business. So particularly my business, March 17th, that's the day. That's when everything changed for us. But my competitors, uh, and again, in, in the way I think about business, my competitors are not com my competitors. You know, I work with my competitors. Yes. Uh, back pre, uh, pre C word, uh, yeah. pre this time I had two boats, but I would often had 10, 20 bookings on a day. So I had to work with all of my competitors cause I was spilling my business into their boats. Um, and so when I was talking to my competitors, certainly the group tour market dried up January. So, mm -hmm. Uh, the peers started to, they would, they you know, there's this, this, this guy in uh, Boat Lagoon, he owns uh, 20 boats. Why, why did it dry up in January? Because they, there still was people, the, the situation wasn't going on too much then, no? So rumors started to come around that time, right? Okay, uh, gotcha. And a lot of that group tour market comes from the Chinese market and things started to change uh, okay. slowly yeah. over there. Because they knew way before the world. Okay, I see your point. Okay, yeah. 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 So I, I, you know, I, my, my direct example would be there's a, there's a, a guy, his name Chuck, he's a local Thai, he owns a, a boat business in uh, Boat Lagoon, he owns 20 boats. And uh, December, 20 boats a day going out, couldn't keep up with demand, I couldn't get any boats from him. January, he's calling me, uh, I got 15 boats sitting at the pier, anytime you need help, got discounted price, you know, happy to help you. Uh, started to work with him in January with my overflow. February, uh, I was 100% of his business. March, when my business shut down, his business shut down. Yeah. Um, so that's where, you know, my basis of, of fact comes from, not from looking at any kind of statistical figures, just on the ground, seeing what's happening in my industry. I think it started to hit January, you know, March 17th. I remember it very clearly. I was on Rayleigh Beach and everything was starting to close around me. Um, and what was, do you mean by that close around you? Just, you know, limitations on where I could start to take my boats, uh, cancellations around, uh, you know, this was when borders were starting to think about close. Limitations as in like the, because the, the waters are policed. Yes. They weren't letting you go into certain areas that you could go before. So it's like uh, we were Phuket based. Yeah. And uh, certainly I think in that early days, Phuket was uh, a place that you were feared to come from. Okay. Um, and, uh, 
you know, I say March 17th, the, the, number, the, mind, the number in my mind is very clear because I took some expats to Satoon by boat so they could do a visa run. Satoon, where is Satoon? Satoon is oh, Sat uh, oh, in the south on the Malaysian border, I, right? I, other people like my friend, I haven't, I, I'm not as fluent in Thai. Let's say we would call it Satun, S A T U N, right? Yes, okay. yes. Satoon, Satun, same. So thing. I gotcha. went from Phuket to Kolipe, Kolipe to Satoon to do a border run so that these uh, yeah. expats could get a visa bounce. They came back across the border onto my boat. The next day, the border closed. From Malaysia side, yeah. Malaysia side. Yeah, because I, I had a friend, he was working with us. Um, again, we're doing electronics manufacturing. It's, it's another business. I wear too many damn hats, but um, he got stuck in Malaysia too. And his plan, like he wanted to go Malaysia back into Thailand. Um, but then Malaysia locked him in. Thailand closed the borders. And then, you know, what? the Malaysian government said to all the expats, they only gave them 60 days. They're like, you have 60 days to get the hell out of our country if you don't have a visa. He ended up going to Nicaragua. So you're, you've done this visa run. Visa run's finished, on the boat, go back to Rayleigh to stay the night, and news is out, the Malaysian <clears throat> border's closed. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm sitting there going, we're going to close. For sure, Thailand's going to close, probably going to go to at least provincial borders closing. Phuket's going to close. So I say to my customers, we're going to get back to Phuket. I've, I've got this feeling... Nothing, no, nothing official, but I got a feeling that things are going to really tighten up and we should get back to Phuket um, to stay there. So I get off the boat. That was the last customer on that boat. Um, this is at Satoon, and just so people can understand, um, if you were to drive a car from Phuket to Satoon, I'm talking uh, nine hours? Yeah, nine hours. About yeah. nine hours. Yeah. And on a boat, because now you're ripping across the bay. How, yeah, three hours, but, three and a half hours. Oh, it's hours. only three and a half hours. Yeah. Is it an enjoyable ride though? Because you must be ripping it. I mean, I saw you. You know, in a in a good sea, it's an enjoyable ride. So that was the that was the first time that visa run was the first time I ever took a boat to Kolipe. from Phuket to Kolipe is four and a half hours, and Kolipe is life changing. Okay. Oh, uh, on the on the the boat. Yeah. Oh, wow. that's okay. But you're going full tail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going full tail. Um, and that's a life changing place. I love Kolipe. Yeah, I've, I've been two three years ago. It's gorgeous. And so. During the last 12 months, I think I've been to Kolipe 40 or 50 times because um, we, we adapted products. How many months? In the last 12 months. The last, I, I was wondering, Nando kept saying, he's like, yeah, we're, gonna do, we're doing a run. We're going to Kolipe. I'm like, isn't that like 12 hours away? So I didn't realize that you can get there on a boat uh, in about four and a half hours. How much gas is that using? Uh, return trip, 1,200 liters. And what's the cost behind? So, so you spend about 40,000 baht. 40, on, yeah, yeah, I was going to say it. Yeah, yeah, it's not um, it's not cheap to rip down there. No, no, no. but it's beautiful. Yeah, Very, it's gorgeous. Yeah, so you know that was a that was a new kind of product experience for us that we created to survive COVID. So, yeah, um, you know, moving, you know, we're so sitting on the beach in Rayleigh, seeing things closing, go back. Uh, pretty much the next day, all our bookings canceled. Yeah, so, uh, we were, and you know that's a that's a that is a mass event. When you get 12 months worth of bookings, all cancel at one time, you know? So back then we were taking 50% deposits, you know, like, because mm. we were so busy, we had to guarantee that you're going to turn up to the pier and you guarantee that you're going to turn up on the boat because if not, next person in line. Um, and so 
you know, we get back to the pier, everyone's canceling. We come out with a company policy that we're going to refund everything. You know, it's like, if you don't cancel, we're going to cancel you. You know, because yeah. we, we didn't want to hold their money on our books. Yeah, you don't want to burn your brand. Either. Yeah, yeah. So we just went out and mass refunded, mass canceled everybody. They're like, you know, well, why don't you issue, you know, vouchers and stuff? I'm like, I'm not going to go down this path because who knows how oh. long this is going to be. You know, let's just, if you want to hold your book in, I'm still going to give you your money back. Yeah. You know, so we pushed out all these cancellations, pushed back all the money to people, then sat there and looked at how long potentially is this going to impact our business. Uh, and then the next uh, next thought is how long is this going to impact our staff and then our staff's family? Because we know, we know, we know our staff very well. We, we know, you know, uh, our guide, he's the only working guy in his family. So he provides for his entire family. So now he's not working mm-hmm. his whole entire family. What are they going to do? You know, our captain has got, you know, a wife and two kids. His wife stays at home because he's a captain and he works 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. She has to stay at home. To and this realization was quite quick, like around March 17th or how, yeah. how long did it take to kick in when in you the, realized shit's hit the fan? In the days after that. Days after. Yeah, it's not weeks, it's days, yeah. you know, because, you know, we went from that to lockdown pretty fast, yeah. you know. Um, so we, we, we went, what, lockdown April? April. We did yeah. district lockdown, right? Yes. So where were you stuck? You were stuck in the Laguna area? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was up. I forgot north of uh, Blue Tree. I was actually a, at a friend's house up there. So you're in Sri Sri Santun area. That's the area. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's an okay area to be locked down. Yeah, it actually. was fine. It was fine. No yeah. problem. So you know, we we we. I think you know, maybe even one week I was back from holiday, and this leads to the charity work. Uh, people always ask me, when was the first life bag that you gave? You know, when was the first time that you dipped dipped into personal funds and well, even food? even before that life bag, like the the idea, how did that come come about? Well, that's where it all comes to. Is like we, I said to my wife, how how are our staff going to survive? Like we're gonna we kept them on salary, right? But in our industry, you get paid. Uh, staff get paid three levels. Level one is a base salary. Level two, they get paid a daily rate. Every day the boat goes out, they get paid again. Level three is they get tips. Yeah. So once once we take away daily rate and tips, uh, they're back to about half of what they would be earning in a normal season, right? So okay, they're lucky they're getting paid salary because nearly everybody in my industry stopped. They've just fired everybody. We kept everybody on salary, but we knew that without daily rates and without tips, that they were really going to struggle. So we said, okay, let's go buy them all rice. Let's go buy them all noodles. Let's go buy them all. Uh, tinned fish, let's go buy them everything that we think they're going to need for the next month and buy it in a big supply. So it wasn't a life bag, but it was a big supply where it's like, you don't need to worry about food. Use your salary to pay your rent. Use your salary to pay the kids' school. Food's taken care of for the next month. And so, buying kind of at that macro wholesale level. So you at least you're, it's a bit cheaper. It is, yeah, it is. Yeah. And again, you know, it's not great food that they're, they're getting. It's just something to allow them to survive. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, the concept of life bags, we, we didn't call it a life bag back then. It was just, hey, guys, we're worried about you. We're worried about your families. Here's the company giving you something to help you through for this month. Yep. Um, because, you, you know, we couldn't predict how long this was going to go on for. Um, and back then, you were just thinking about a month ahead. Um, so we gave them enough for a month and then started to happen. You know, we went to sub-district lockdown. Um and some of our staff started reaching out. They're like, you know, we appreciate what you did to help us, but some people in our village, you know, they need some help. Uh, can 
can you help? And uh, when you're sitting in a villa and you've got a pool and your own boats and you've had a good year and you're sitting there going, how can I say no? Yeah. You know? Uh, so in sub-district uh, lockdown, uh, we started to buy supplies. Uh, so we weren't packing life bags back then. What we would do, we'd get a macro, and we'd buy a thousand kilos of rice, we'd buy you know, the elements of what a life bag was, but we'd buy it all in mass supply. And not putting it together. Just we kinda. didn't put it together. We'd just take it, we'd deliver it to a village. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, to do that in that time, you know, hard border lockdown, we would have to get someone from the government to come with us to go buy it. And then they'd have to come with us to the district that we were going to, you know, to the village that we're going to help because we needed district pastors. You know, we had to pass checkpoints. Yeah. But um, somebody was helping you get through. Yeah. It. Yeah. So we had government friends who were helping us get yeah. through all these checkpoints to get it to the village. Um, you know, and uh, I don't know if Nando talked about it when he was on the podcast, but uh, you know, this is when Sutai started to help as well. Cause I reached out to Nando and say, Hey, this is what we're doing. I think it would be good for Sutai to help the Surin area. You know, like yep. reach. You know, you guys should reach out and help around you. And well, why like, did you decide to reach out to Nando? Was it because you knew that he he had the ability to help, or I don't think it was about the the financial ability. I just knew that that was who he was. You yeah, know, it was like he. Anyone who spends time with Nando knows he's like a pure heart. You know, he's mm -hmm. he's that he's that guy that if you need something, he's the first guy to call. Yeah, you know, um, and at this time. Uh, you know, we were getting a little bit bored and I'm like, hey, Nando, what about I buy the supply and you drive to the border and I'll put it on your truck and then you go and give it out in that Surin area because he had access, yep. right? And you go give it out in the Surin area. So we, we had like uh, these sub-district border parties. Border border yeah. <laughs> were you meeting at the Bangtao one? Uh, we were meeting, uh, yeah. The, the back road Bangtao. Yeah. 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 And so I would drive my truck up, he'd drive his truck up, we'd swap the yeah. supplies and we'd take the time where we, where the government would allow us, we'd hop in the same car, spend 10, 15 minutes catching up with each other, you know, yeah. Hunter, you know, yeah. I know Hunter yeah. really well, he's a good kid and he knows my boy. And so they'd all just play a little bit in the car and that was our, our con we call them sub-district parties, you know, we'd have lockdown parties in our car for 10 minutes. And What was the reaction of the, you want to call them the, the guards there, were they there? Open with that. They were okay because uh, we were passing through the subdistricts pretty pretty often to give supplies, and they started to know who we were. But also, um, as a way of making it nice and smooth, we would make sure that those guards also had access to some of the stuff that we we're giving out. So, and they would bring it to their villages, or correct? Yeah. Okay, and and so. This first village that you went to, um, again, you were saying it, it's, it's like Lemsai, the village. Lemsai is a Lemsai. village. Yeah, okay. Lemsai is a village. Uh, is that near Aupo? Or yes, very near very Aupo. Near Aupo. Uh, this is a guide village. Pretty much everybody in this village is either a guide that works on a boat or a cleaner that works in the airport. Okay. Okay. And COVID hits, lockdown comes, nothing, you know. Uh, they can't go on a boat. They can't go to an airport. Um, so we went and helped this village first. Um, and then it just started to naturally grow because when we would go to help a village, we would work with uh, what we call a village chief. Yep. So, so the head man of the village, we would work with him and some of the elders. What is there, what is the Thai word? Do you know that? Puye Ban. Puye Ban. Yeah. That's like chief of the village. Correct. And th this actually interests me. So it's, um, I was always wondering like how... What is, what is the like 
the the political hierarchy for a Puyebang? Are they ab- above like the politicians in Phuket, or do they have? Do they have a certain level of power within that village? How does that all work? Oh, so now we're having like a totally different conversation to what we started with. Yeah. Because now you're talking about how do we actually even operate our donation program. I, I was program. interested in, in, in that part of like, yeah, how, how do you operate? Do you just show up at the, the village with food to give out? Do you have to talk to certain people? How does that process work? So for us, we always work with our village chiefs. Why? Because uh, we wanted to give in a non-political way. So... Okay. I don't know, you know, election cycles here. Every time someone wants to go, say, for mayor, uh, orbital uh, position, uh, they go out and they start donating stuff to people to help and they start helping the community and they're doing it for a political purpose. They're not doing it because they want to really help the people. They're doing it because they want to get their name out there. Yeah. Uh, We made a decision straight away to never work with the head of the orbitals. We wanted to work with the Puyé Barnes. Why? They're elected on 60-year cycles. Okay. They have no… There's no motivation. There's no political motivation to go and hand out a life bag or go and hand out a supply or go and help their community. And honestly, a Puyeban, for them to be elected to that area, they have to live in it. So, you know, a Puyeban might be for a whole moo, you know, so… They know the families in that move better than anybody else. Move meaning uh, it's it's not street. Is it street? It's, it's a long street, or because it's not yeah. soy. Soy is road. Yeah, because so. like a, a soy comes off a move. Yeah, and a puye bar might have a a move that's got twelve soys on it. Gotcha. So he's in charge of that. That he's in charge road. of that that move. Yeah. Okay. And you know he's ideally, if a village has got a problem, they're going to go to the puye barn, and then if the Puyé Ban can't fix it, then he's going to go to the Orbitor. And if the Orbitor can't fix it, then they're going to go to the district. If the district can't fix it, then they're going to go to Phuket Town to the province, right? Okay. That's the that's the hierarchy of, of, of basic government here. Okay. And we just wanted to work in a non-political way. And I also wanted to do it under the radar. You know, I, I didn't want to go and give, you know, for the first, I think, nine months that Nando and I were doing life bags, the only people that knew that Nando and I were doing life bags was in the in the foreign community was Nando and I. Yeah, you know, like we didn't tell anyone, we didn't promote it, we didn't social media it. We just did it. Weren't looking for investors, charity funds, nothing. Just doing no. it. Yeah. yeah, we just did it, and we wanted to do it in the least resistance model possible. So I used my Thai staff to work with the Thai Puyé bonds, and when the life bags were going into the community, it was given by my Thai team. You know. Yeah. I, I had this whole concept that I had the easy job. I just paid the bill. Uh, you didn't show your face. No, I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't. I wanted this to be a Thai helping Thai thing. Yeah. You know? And I've been here in Phuket long enough that you know I don't have a Thai citizenship, but I, I consider myself Thai. Uh, I have Thai wife. My son is mixed. I have. I think I run my life very Thai way. I, I, I don't think I could ever go back to a Western world. No. You know. I don't own pants. I don't own shoes. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we, we, no, I don't own shoes. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> bare feet or, or or sandals only. So you know, we we we, we ran through the puye barns, um, and once we gave to one puye barn, they would maybe talk to another one, you know, who was a friend of theirs, and say, "Hey, you know, you guys are need in need." Here's Sean's team's number, and they wouldn't even say Sean's team. You know, they would just talk. You know my Thai staff's name and they would just give the name of my Thai staff. And we just built this network across the island of, of Puyé Barnes. I actually think uh, 
in our donation program, there's a, a lady, her name's Kunzira, and she works with all the Puye Barns. I think she knows more Puye Barns on this island than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and they know her more than anybody else. Um, and she was the one that they would call. You know, it's like, Kunzira, can, 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 you, can your boss help our village? You know, they need help. And so she would like, how many people in need? You know, how many, how long have they been in need for? Uh, and, you know, during these COVID times, we'd, we'd have to set up in a way where we could give out where we weren't building mass gatherings of people and we had masks on and we had hand sanitizers and we had public health workers. And so all of that came from our connections with the, the and, and how, how many would you say, I'm assuming Kun's uh, Zera, Zera? Yeah. How many Puye Bongs has she been in contact with, or in general, how many are there on the island? Uh, you know, it's a. You're asking me to give a number that I'm not truly aware is correct. So I, I read a number and it said 148 Puye Bongs. 148. That's that's the number I read. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, so to allow us to to understand, because let's say that, uh, and actually we were talking about this with Nando. So let's say we took the Bang Bangtao area here, where it's more by the the mosque. Yes. How many Pue Bongs would be in that area? Like, would there be four? Because there's four moves? At least four. At least so, four. Because Bung Tao has a high population a as lot well. Of yeah. I think it's more than that. Yeah. Um, so, no, you know, full disclosure, my wife, uh, her uncle is a Puye Bang of move four here. Okay. Uh, another of her uncle is the head of the Orbitor here. Yep. Um, so s some of our way of working with the government was made easy because because of the connections because of the connections we had and like if we knew an area that was in need so like uh, you, we had a network of, of of people feeding back to us saying not just Puye Barnes but also like Thais who would just say hey my you know my staff would say hey uh, you know uh, the Rawaii Sea Gypsy Village they're they're struggling you know you need to help them out and maybe that Puye Barn didn't know about us so okay. we'd have to go and talk to say my wife's uncle and say, can you find out the phone number and introduce us to the Puye barn down there? Down by the fishing villages. Yeah. Of yeah Cause they yeah. were probably relying not only on the fishing, but also those boat tours to that Island. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they got hit really hard, really fast. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the areas that we went in to help. And then, you know, say maybe the recycling village in Phuket town, you know, like we needed to just not let it organically grow where people found out about us. We had to push it, yeah. you know, so we could get them to get out to uh, help the people who really needed, and that was the thing. Is like in that first nine months, every single life bag that went out, uh, five star paid for, mm -hmm. and I personally wanted to know that where it was going was the highest need area in Phuket on that week. Yeah, because you could not meet the needs of everybody. That's no, impossible. You know, like yeah. right now, they say, you know. Official provincial Phuket numbers is 48,000 in need of immediate food assistance as of today. Wow. I can't feed 48,000 no. people. No. And this, this, this concept of, um, okay, let's talk about that. You have the food bag and then yeah. you have the meals. So in a food bag, how many meals are there? Uh, you know, four to five for, four a to five for a family of four. Gotcha. Um, and again, when you look at the bag, not a great meal, you know. Like what's what's what are we getting in this meal? So, uh, in a let's talk about what's in a bag first. Okay. So uh, a bag we're going to say about one point three kilograms of rice, uh, three tins of mackerel, five uh, packs of uh, 
we call them two-minute noodles maybe, but here in Thailand they call them mama noodles. Okay. Um, a cooking oil, um, then a flavoring oil, so maybe like a, like a meji or like a, a soy sauce or a black sauce or a fish sauce, some, something to give flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, back then, eggs. So we did give a pack of eggs. That must um, be difficult to transport. Eggs are so sensitive. You must have broke tons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was Nando's job. So, you know, like to save money, to, to make our money go as far as we could, we wouldn't buy a one kilogram bag of rice, right? We found out that the cheapest brand of rice was available to be bought from Macro in a five kilogram bag, not a 50 kilogram bag. I can do the numbers, yep. a five kilogram bag. So we would get that and we would pack that down to a one point. So we'd open the bag, we'd repack it into a new bag down to a 1.3 kilogram bag, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we'd buy a pack of 30 eggs and Nando would get a, a handsaw and cut these eggs uh, down to packs of 10. Yep. Um, and then we'd have to lucker band them up and then tie them so that they wouldn't break. And this was Nando's job every day of the week. <laughs> That's got to be the hardest job there. Yeah, because like, again, like, uh, people are like, why don't you just buy it prepacked? I'm like, because every single extra bar that I spend on that prepackaging could is, go to more people. Could go to more people. So yeah. the concept was, it's every, not about saving. It's no, it's, it's like you, you. It's about your time. You have a certain amount of time. I was, I know, I, I was like this. Is like, I'm willing to invest as much time as possible so that my dollar can go further. Yes, it's yeah. like at this time my business was not running. Nando's business wasn't running. So all my staff, all his staff, they had nothing to do. So if they sat there for 12 hours to cut eggs, well, it's better so than sitting there for 12 hours sleeping, right? Yep. That, that's how we saw it, right? And at the end of the day, we used manpower to reduce cost. Um, and we were always just trying to maximize what we could purchase. And are you able to share with us on that? Like what, what is typically a, a bag? What is the, your cost behind it? About uh, between 140 and 160 Thai baht a bag. 100, okay. Yeah. So now we, you know, we, uh, we've removed eggs out because that was just, uh, when we turned into uh, dry season, we were having issues with, with storage of eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, we couldn't pack them fast enough and get them out into the community fast enough. They just they started to cook. So now we don't put eggs in our bag. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so... Now it's like we don't put eggs in our bag because of this reason. Um, people are like, are you trying to save money? It's like, no, it's, we're not trying to save money. The, the reality is is that we were just losing too much supply. So we had to sub it out. Um, and now we rotate something else in instead. Okay. So what it is changes week to week depending on what's on special on macro um, and what we can get bulk supply of. So when you pack uh, uh, as much as we do right now, Macro runs out, you know. So I, I packed a – last weekend we packed 2,000 life bags and I bought Phuket out of oil supply. No, at, at the macro? At macro. And and when you're delivering those, those those bags, I mean, I'm assuming the same family sometimes might get two bags in a month or three bags in a month. But w- would you not be supplying them with too much oil on the balance? Do you know what I mean? So in an ideal world, we would help every family a couple of times a month, but that's not my world. Uh, maybe every second month I can help the same family. How many, how many, so you're saying currently every day, 48,000 people are in need of food yes. on Phuket. How many bags are you getting out per month? Uh, 
or meals? Uh, so let's talk bags. Uh, yeah. And bags can be anywhere between ten and fifteen thousand bags. Okay. Um, so we don't scratch the the need, right? Yeah. Because if a bag lasts four days, five days, maybe they can stretch it to six. Yeah. Uh, maybe I get back to them next month. You know, but it's it's really difficult to to to, to say it cleanly so that you can understand. Like I don't. I don't say this so you feel bad for the people that we're trying to help, but it's the reality of the situation. Yeah, it's yeah. like all we can do is help them stand up for a few days and hope that that gives them the ability to go and find some other way to help themselves for the rest of the month. Yeah, because there's not, there's really no other options for them at this point until tourists are back. There's nothing like what else can you do unless you unless you go fishing. I mean, that's pretty much it. And then, and that was, uh, you know, when we first started to help and we were helping around these peer areas and stuff, we would say to the people we're giving the bags to, it's like, you have the basics now, so spend your days fishing. Spend your yeah. days getting, you know, I remember one of my staff, he's a, he's a tour guide, and he used to send me photos every day um, of the shells that he would go out and he would pick. And it's like, today's a bad day for my family. I've got three shells. Mm. That, that's, he's feeding a family of five and three shells. And so I'm sitting here at home, like in my villa, feeding my kids uh, an okay meal. And I'm sitting there going, this, this guy's feeding his family on three shells? I, I can't deal with that. No, it doesn't rub well with me. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't rub well with someone like Nando either. Uh, and that's why he's like the best partner in the world to have in a program like this, because he has the same philosophy as, as me. It's like we, we can't be having an okay or a good life and then be seeing someone down the road. And we know their situation, you know, it's close your eyes to it. No. So, you know, uh, I think I said this uh, on an interview not long ago. If I was donating my money to charity and I wasn't seeing the people that I was helping, I wouldn't have helped for so long. Yeah, I, I believe in that. I don't particularly believe in just donating money to charities to let's say international organizations because it actually goes in the pocket of people to run that now that that's not a bad thing when you have a charities that large that makes sense but for me when i donate I, I actually i don't donate to charities what i do it's pretty strange if i see people on the street like there's a there's a guy out, out on my street i'll give him a thousand baht every other week i'll see a lady down the road she's selling cucumbers i'll buy the cucumbers offer or the pineapples and I don't even need it. I'll take it home or I'll give it to the other guy that I just saw. Because what I believe in is giving back to people in your surrounding area, because that's, you want to improve that area around you. You don't want, and I also, and, and this, I don't talk about this at all because I also don't believe in, you know, and, and you did the same flashing about it either, but at least trying to, to make awareness so other people can do it. And What's very simple, people don't understand. There's a guy on the street here that picks up plastic bottles. That's how he makes his money. A yeah. hundred baht to that guy is more than you can understand to him. Like, and if I give him a hundred or a thousand or five hundred, you know, every few days here or there, it means the world to him. It gets him another meal, but it doesn't break the bank either. So this is kind of what I do. I would say you and my wife get along well. Because quite yeah. often we'll go to a shop and I'm like, do you need that? She's like, no, but they haven't made a sale today. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't know. I bought it. You know, I feel yeah. sorry for them. I'm like, I, under I totally understand that. You know, I get that. Um, you know, and I, and I think uh, for, for us, you know, like uh, when, we, when we went from doing it privately to doing it publicly, there was a 
a big change, you know, like when we were doing it privately and it was just Nando and me and Amy and my wife and my family and my staff and Nando's staff uh, is very, very different to how we do it now. Because when I do it now, and we, we, we love how we do it now, but when we do it so publicly now and we have so many hands involved in it now, it's so much more complicated than it was when we did it privately. You know, it was like when we did it privately, I'd message Nando and say, hey, tomorrow we're going to pack life bags. And he's like, okay. Uh, and that was it. And we'd turn up and we'd pack life bags. And if it took us 12 hours, it took us, you know, sometimes we're packing 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, so Nando, tomorrow we're going to deliver life bags. And he's like, okay, uh, uh, I got a class at eight. So what can we do? I'm like, oh, at six o'clock, we'll pack the truck. And then when you finish your class, we'll go deliver life bags, you know, with our team. And he's like, okay, let's do it like that. And it's like, it was so easy because it was just him and I working around our own personal schedules. And then, when it started doing it publicly, now we're having to work around, you know, hundreds of people's schedules and hundreds of people who've got different ideas about how we do things. And you're doing it now all at Sutai? Yeah, at Sutai. And how many, when you're you're doing a packing, are you doing it once a week, twice a week? Uh, so we do one volunteer pack a week. Okay. Uh, and then everything else that we need is packed in our old model of, of we pack it privately. Okay. So, uh it might be Nando's team packing it, it, might be my team packing it, or it might be just a couple of really good volunteers that we have that come to one of our houses and pack it there. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, last Saturday at Sutai, we packed 2,000 bags. Before that, we packed 5,000 bags. Before that, we packed 2,000 bags. Um, and that's like a community vibe that's a community pack. And you're packing there for, what, five, six hours? I mean, I I've drove by numerous times, and I've seen Nando packing there. And Yeah, so I think... Uh, Depends on the number. If you're packing 5,000 bags, we pack that across uh, two days, uh, two full days. Uh, if you're packing 1,000 bags with enough volunteers, we can do it in about two and a half hours. Um, it all comes down to how many volunteers turn up in the day. Yeah. Um, you know, but our very first volunteer pack, so that's when we invited other people to come help us pack. That was a 1,000 bag pack, and that was in December, December last year at Sutai. Um, all from when we started handing out life bags up into December, it was all packed. Uh, uh, I have a house. We emptied it all out and we packed it in, in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, we didn't even have air con or anything. It was just, uh, just pack away, you know, pack away. Um, and now we're, now we're at Sutai and we have all these volunteers. It allows us to pack at a scale that what used to take us three, four, five days to pack. Now we can pack it in hours, you know, and that, that's amazing to see. But what's probably more amazing is just the people we've met through it, you know, the expats that we've met. That's just amazing. It's like uh, someone asked me, like, what would you be most proud of post this? And I'm like, the community. The community like, that, yeah. that's getting involved. The community that's getting involved. Not just the expat community, but the Thai community. You know, if you what's, go what's the biggest uh, lesson you've learned from this if someone wanted to start their own charity? Or maybe some advice that you would give any, anyone out there? Because if this this is on YouTube and – now, I mean, probably by the end of this podcast, we have millions of views and <laughs> all these people in uh, in other countries. It could be Brazil. It could be South America. It could be the Philippines. If there's other foreigner expats out there living in these communities, what advice would you get them to get something like this started? I think start with your own money. If you're going to make mistakes, make it on your own, your own dime and be accountable to no one but yourself. Um, once you've worked out a system and a process and you've maximized budget and you've you've worked out exactly how to do it, then okay, you can start asking other people to help. But 
don't help with other people's money because the stress is too high. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the mistakes we made when we were cooking eggs and we were breaking eggs is like, okay, you know, if I had to go and tell uh, a donor that we lost a hundred eggs today because Nando, you know, yeah, it can happen. You know, through them yeah, and it slips, through and slips, you know, or, you know, something happened, you know, like if you have to go and tell that to a donor, like that's not a good, that's not a good news story. Um, yeah. But that's, that's, that's my hundred eggs. So I'll just go buy another hundred. That's okay. It's no problem. That problem is easily fixed and we don't have any, you know, ill will towards this. And when you're working like we were working, you know, it's hard work. It's, it's long work. You make mistakes, you know, you, you have errors, you know, and you have problems, you know, when we would, some communities that we would go into, we, you know, we'd have problems that we had to clear once we got into the community, you know, like. What do you mean by that? You know, uh, if you were going to go into a community where the Puyé Ban maybe wasn't 100% liked. Um, so by so, the community. By the community. Uh, if you don't know that and you go into that community, maybe you won't be so well received. So this is why sometimes it's By like, the community or the Puyé Ban? By the, by the community. Okay. Because um, uh, maybe the, maybe the Puyé Ban hasn't been as responsive as you'd like. You know, uh, and you know, I know an example during our giving where we were giving and we were working with a Puyé Ban and it turned out that the community didn't like him and he got kicked out and, uh, there's a new Puyé Ban in that area now. And it's easy to work in that community now because the community liked the Puyé Ban, but we always used to wonder, why is it so difficult working in here? You know, why is it hard to get to the people in need. Why is it like, what, what do you mean by that hard? As in like, you can't get the cars in, you're getting blocked. You can't get the food out. It's more like uh, if we were, when we do a, uh, the easiest way to distribute fast is to centralize distribution. So if we can bring, if we can say, all right, we're going to be at this spot within the community at this time, everyone come join a line. We give out, it's 15 minutes. It's done. Yep. Right. That's that, that's the, optimally that's the best way to do it. Like from a commercial running your, trying to run your, 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 uh, like charity. creating a central distribution yes. in the community. Yeah. yeah. But some communities you'd go and you're like, where, where do I set up? Where are all these people, you know, that, that are in need? Like we know you're in need, you know, but you're not coming out. And it's like, they don't want to come out and show the Puyé Ban that they're supporting him. I so we would have to go to the house, house by house, by house, by house, by house, 300 houses. Mm. Not so easy. And if you're, if you're doing that, the Puyé Ban wants to come with you and he's not liked. To show his face that he's uh, in okay. Now I you see. understand my yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you're going to get this like, uh, the, it's politics. There's a little bit of red tape involved, even at that, uh, not nomadic lifestyle, but simpler, a simple lifestyle. That's, yes. that's interesting. Um, what I was really interested to, to digging into was when you went out to these remote islands, when did that start? When did you decide to make the, that decision to, to move forward on that? So here's something that you would probably, I don't think I've ever said it anywhere before, but I was looking at my staff uh, and seeing that they were missing the sea uh, and seeing my boats parked at a pier. And I just said to my wife, I'm like, we should contact some of the uh, village chiefs for the outerlying islands because A, we can help the village, but B, my boys can get back on a boat, mm-hmm. you know, and that element of what they're missing in their life, you know, like, okay, they're, they're getting paid and they're working and they're packing life bags. But if you really understand your staff, 
you know what makes them tick. And for, for my captains to not go on a boat for a few months, that's a, it's a, it's yeah. a big problem for them. You know, yeah. like that starts to create problems at home for them because they're not happy, you know? But so I said to my wife, I said, let's, let's pair this together where uh, we're going to help not just Phuket, we're going to help the outer lying islands, uh, outer lying, uh, outer lane islands, but also in the same, t same boat, I'm going to help my staff because they're actually going to start getting back on the sea and they're going to start enjoying life again, you know? So when we would go out to these islands and deliver these life bags, uh, we would tell the crew afterwards, well, let's go and let's go to Kai Island and go for a swim. You know, let's go to Pee Pee and see what it looks like. You know, let's go to uh, have lunch at that normal restaurant that we would go to, that one that you like, you know, because we wanted to introduce some, some level of normality back into, you know, creating a stability for them. Um, so uh, the honest answer to your question, and I'd like to be as honest as possible, is the, the, the driving factor was we just wanted to get our guys back to sea. Uh, and we knew that there was equal need on the island as there was on Phuket. Yep. So we weren't not servicing the need. Uh, we were just combining two goals together. Um, and that it really actually we would see a, a spike in, the, in the, the mental health of our staff uh, when they were out on the sea delivering life bags because they were back doing what they loved. Um, and it was – uh, from a company point of view, it was good for us as well because we would turn our engines over, we'd run fuel through the boats. Yeah, because the fuel, I mean, this is going to be more expensive than the food itself. Yeah, yeah, look, it is. Uh, in, in some cases, the, the cost of putting the boat out exceeds what I'm uh, giving uh, in terms of the life bags. Yeah. Um, but uh, on a commercial reality point of view, if I don't run that engine, it's going to cost me a lot more than if I do, than if I do run it. So, uh, yeah. You know, I, keep the keep it yeah, going. I, anyways, I, had a, yeah. I had a friend who put a boat back in. So we, when we say a boat back in, so uh, when the when we close our businesses, we take our boats up, we put them on land, and we just leave them. So when you put it back in, there's a cost, not just like the physical cost of putting the boat in, but it's been on land. So I had a friend; he had his boat in on land nine months, and he put it back in the water, cost him half a million bar worth of maintenance costs mm -hmm. to get that boat back up and running, right? And I'm thinking, have I spent a half a million baht running fuel through my boats, paying my crew to go check it, putting it out to sea when maybe it wasn't worth putting it out to sea because I'm losing money? I'm like, I haven't spent a half a million baht doing that, you know? So I made a better decision to keep my boat in the water and just pay my crew to take it out every now and then. And so maybe one day, you know, we'd even run boats out just to let the crew go and fish. And how many boats do you have in uh, your company? Right now we're at uh, twelve boats. Twelve boats. So, yeah. um, it's I, I was just interested in that. So, how many times did you end up running out to sea doing these uh, remote island deliveries? Uh, so again, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a huge number because we were trying to rotate through need. So maybe we'd do an island delivery once a month. Okay. Um, and you know, if you see our island deliveries, uh, so for example, we go to Koyao Yai. Uh, 2,000 bags. Um, possibly 2,000 bags could fit on one boat, but mm. I would use my whole fleet to take them out. Um, so everyone, because you have to think about it, like uh, if I'm going to put a boat out, uh, my captain's going to get his daily rate. Okay, so that's good for him. Uh, the fuel guy I'm buying fuel from is going to get fuel for the day. The guy I buy my ice from is getting the ice for the day. The guy I buy my soft drink, my water, my fruit, 
the guy that we buy lunch from for our crew. So I was seen as more like I'm trying to stimulate economic impact around my around my peer as and well. And you're giving some normalcy back into everyone's lives and yeah. many people's lives as well that are involved in that. Correct, yeah. correct. And so, and you know, we were using it as a way to try and keep afloat some of those businesses that we relied on to run our business. Mm -hmm. You know, like that fuel guy could make a sale of fuel to a 12 boats one day a month. Okay, it's nothing like what it was beforehand, but at least he's he's turning his fuel over, right? Like yeah. so that's how I would I, I don't know, maybe I have a wrong thinking about this, but I, I was trying to create a normalcy and also not just for my crew, but also for us as well as a company. It's like if we forget how to run boats, you know, if we forget like the process of uh checking our engines, checking our systems, yeah. if we forget this process, then the restart cost of the business is gonna be high and yeah, maybe we're training, gonna so. maybe we're gonna affect our and, brand. And you're you're growing those relationships with your suppliers, your vendors, your partners, because once stuff gets, you know, up and running again, they'll remember who helped them during that time as well. Yeah. And look, I think it was also the other thing, like, you know, as a company, we started like when we shut down and we weren't getting a lot of business, we started to do crew days where they would, we'd go play football together, but it's not the same as being on the sea, you yeah. know, like when our crew are on the sea and there's 12 boats and they're all talking to each other, re relaying back, oh, the wave is big here, the wave's not big here, there's customers here, there's no one here, the sea is good here, I saw a dolphin. Yeah. You know, like this is like, this is a good feeling, you know, this is like, you know, as a business owner, I love to see my, like, it's like music, you know, if you're a musician and you really nail a song, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're, it's a great feeling for us. It's like, as a company, if we've got like 12 awesome tours going on, they're seeing dolphins, they're seeing whale sharks, they're snorkeling, they're fishing, you know, it's like, this is like, this is our, this is our version of nailing a song. Mm -hmm. And so we could get that feeling once a month that we're nailing a song. You know, like we've got 12 boats out, they're all coordinated, nothing's breaking down, the life bags are going, we're coordinating with the peers, you know, because we're going to yell yai, so 12 boats, we need like 20 trucks there to pick up the life bags, we're coordinating with everyone on that island, it's like, uh, we're starting to inject into our company. Yeah, you know, you're bringing this energy back into their lives as well, and then even if you're doing it once a month, I mean, they can look forward to that next month instead of the unknown of when do we get back out to sea and, you know, you, you bring that normalcy back into their life as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and you know, uh, I don't, again, maybe I'm wrong. I also have this concept in my business. I, I say to my, my staff, it's like boats on the water, breed boats on the water. What do you so, mean? By that? Uh, boats on the water breed, breed. Oh, just so, more will come as you Yes. Go. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. uh, if people can see that five star Marines out on the sea and, um, Maybe they just see that from the fact that we put up a social media post saying, hey, today we were out and, you know, we're full of life bags, but hey, we're on the sea. And look, the sea's flat. Uh, maybe someone's going to see that and then it's more likely that they want to come out on the sea. Mm -hmm. So how did we, you know, part of us restarting our business was uh, going out and giving out life bags because uh, people could see, oh, a five-star marine can go on the sea. Yeah, you're bring, bringing some life also to the people on shore that had those boat companies and maybe giving them some hope as well Yeah, that something's coming back. Do, do you see with the Phuket Sandbox, um, well, I guess it's officially started July 1st, do you see things coming back into Phuket anytime soon? I don't either. <laughs> I mean, I think the only hope is, I mean, that's kind of a loaded question. This I mean, is the economically worst period of time that I've ever seen. In Phuket. In Phuket. Maybe all well, in the world. Right? You know, I mean, I, since April, you know, I, yeah. I was looking at the 
I was trying to work out the other day, like what, what's going on, you know, like why is why are things so bad? And I, I got onto the the list of arriving flights that were scheduled for Phuket for the day. I think it was two days ago, and it said thirty nine scheduled flights, eleven eleven flights that actually completed. Mm. So I'm like, that's a, that's a great example of what's going on here. Okay, let's celebrate the two international flights that came. Okay, that's that's great because that's a start, but. Let's not forget the 20-odd domestic flights that didn't come, and you know, that's actually economically worse than the, than the impact of these two arriving flights. Yeah. You, know? Uh, you know, I think the, there was a report I read the other day that said uh, for the first quarter of this year, we're 80% down on the first quarter of last year. Wow. And the Eight, first yeah. quarter of last year was during the C-word time. Yeah, so, yeah. like... Yeah, it's not, uh, no, it's not looking good. I think the only, uh, the next chance I think will be that the China National Week in October. They, they really, something has to happen then. Um, if nothing happens then, it's a far stretch to even Chinese New Year. Yeah, look, I, I, I think Phuket had to start. So this, the sandbox is a great thing because it's a start. It's a way to get us moving forward. And hey, great to start it in wet season. Yep, because uh, all the mistakes that are going to get are going to get made now before we get to dry season. Uh, what am I hopeful of? I'm hopeful of uh, the lowest low season during dry season. If I can get the lowest low season during dry season, that's a good start. You know, uh, because I'm not expecting this to to change very fast. But again, like a, a lot of companies that did shut down and restart, they 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 need this time to to rebuild to train to if we went from closed to open and everything's full yeah, the, 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 it'd be a mess no, it'd be, nothing would work nothing would work yeah. no, no one's ready for that yeah, and then people wouldn't want to come back but i i also think like people will have to be understanding no matter where you travel in the world if you're going to mexico or you're going to the philippines or phuket i think as you're you're traveling and you're those first travelers and you're you're those pioneers i think you're your expectations are going to be low and understanding that shit might not work. Yeah. Look, I, I, I hope it looks that way. And I hope that there all these uh, great five-star resorts that have five-star ratings don't get some bad ratings because they're reopening, you know, like I, I see stuff online right now where they're saying, Oh, like I'm the only person in my hotel. I'm like, yeah, but just so you, you know, expect? you might be the only person in that hotel for the last 14 months, you know, like they're, they're happy to have you. And yeah. like you might feel like it's it, it's empty, but like for, for them that's full, you know. Like for fourteen months they've been closed, you know. Yeah. This is a sign of life. This is hope, you know. And that's that's the number one thing I think is the sandbox can give is that it gives a sign of life and it gives hope. People can see that okay, it's not better today, and maybe it's not better next month, and maybe it's not even better this year. But we're not getting worse. Maybe like the worst was maybe now. Yeah, you know, maybe we're rock. Uh, let's hope that rock bottom is now, because I don't think Phuket can afford to slip much lower than it is right now. But if rock bottom is now and every day can get better from now, then I think that's that's a positive move. And do you see things getting better? I mean, from the sandbox opening, I still find it's kind of no different than it was last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, you know. So you, you asked me from. I think I can answer that from two things. As a business owner, I know it's worse. Uh, Sandbox has made it really, really difficult for us as a business to get uh, clients onto boats. And a lot of the Sandbox clients don't even know the rules that 
they have to operate under in Phuket. So we're having to educate them of the rules. And mm-hmm. uh, so right now we're, I think we're, we're in a month of, of going backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the answer from a business point of view. Uh, now the answer from a charity work point of view, never seen such devastation on the island. and Probably know, even worse than the tsunami times. Because yeah, yeah. at least they could recover. They had the opportunity to recover. Now there's... There's still nothing to recover. Well, from. let's 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 understand. Like I, I wasn't here for the tsunami, so I, I take this from uh, what the people tell me. And from my wife was here, her family was here, the people we helped, a lot of them were here, and they say to us, the tsunami was less devastating um, because all the focus in the world was on let's go help Phuket and Indonesia uh, and Thailand and Indonesia rebuild. So. All the big charities were coming in to help. All the foreigners were flying in to help, and they were all understanding. But this, 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 this situation we're in now, thin. this situation we're in now, is everybody's in the same situation. Yeah. So no one's like have, has got a single focus on let's help Phuket. No, no, no it's like let's help ourselves. You know, yeah. like we're we're all dying, we're all struggling. You know, that family in Phuket. Well, you know, we're, we're not much better here. You know, that's what I yeah. hear a lot of. You know, that's a you know we I get a lot of. Love what you do. Would love to help, but just economically not in a situation where I can help you mm-hmm. keep going. You know, and I totally understand that. You know, like anyone who messaged me and says, "Hey, Sean, you know, how do we help?" I'm like, honestly, help yourself first. Secondly, book a flight when you can. Uh, until then, we'll do what we can. So, so based on that, you did get some help, and I'm sure Juan Phuket, you probably want us to call you out on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you did get some help uh, from Juan Phuket. They came in about how long ago? I think around December or January, there was a meeting that was held. Uh, and, it, and this is like a, a watershed moment. There was a meeting held of all the major charitable organizations on the island. We all came together for a meeting and said, uh, under a lady, her name is Andrea. Uh, she's probably the one that started all of One Phuket. She brought us all together, put us all in a room and said, how about you work together? How about you find a way that, you, that all of you can help the island as a, as a united focus. And uh, part of that idea was, okay, let's keep feeding people through life bags and Sean, Five Star and Sutai know how to do that. So let them keep doing that. And uh, let's try and help raise some funds, get some businesses involved to help do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we had some hotels come on board. We had some private donors come on board. Um, expats were giving. As uh, in donating time and money or both? Uh, both. Both. Um, you know, like a lot of the hotels, uh, uh, the Accor Group, for example, um, they they made a donation, not a direct cash donation, but uh, we helped them put an order into Macro under the, their company account and they sent the supplies to us and we packed them and got them out. Uh, the Pavilions Group did a similar kind of deal. Yep. Um, then uh, Blue Tree got involved. You know, so some of the bigger brands on Phuket realized that they needed to help. Um and the, the reason that I think they realized that they needed to help is that, that Juan Phuket started to put out this message that, hey, Sean and Five Star and Sutai, these local companies, not big international brands, have been doing this for a very, very, very long time. They invested a lot of money. They kind of got a little bit shamed into helping. It's like, well, why are you not helping? You know, like, like step up, see what they're doing. And so, you know, Juan Phuket has, has been great in that they're, they're that, that, that communication arm of they're what kind we're of doing. The, the catalyst to- kick it in the ass and, and also to, to help as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. And so that, that brought funds in and that also brought awareness in and, you know, uh, it, it, 
I suppose, uh, you know, I wouldn't be on the podcast if one bookend weren't out there pushing that this is what we do because you wouldn't have known that Nando well, no, would I do this. I know, I know because Nando was on the, the first <laughs> one. Actually, it's, and it's what's funny is Nando was on the first one and you were on the 10th one. By no means was that planned as like <laughs> timing wise. It just kind of happened. Um, but no, and because I live right here, so I saw that happening and I reached out to Nando, what's going on? And and he kind of, he, he kept it hush-hush to himself, which I yes. think that was probably your strategy then trying to keep it under, like, not not get it, getting too much exposure. Well, um, what we found is each time that we got a little bit of exposure, so, like, you know, in that nine months when we were doing it under the radar, some people found out what we were doing, but each time we got a little bit of exposure, there were some elements of what we were doing, like, you know, I, d I don't know if Nando brought it up, but like, we had this plastic problem, right? Mm -hmm. We use a lot of plastic in our life bags, and as a marine company, Totally understand the impact that this is having on the environment. But, you know, we had this decision, do we spend more money to go and buy an environmentally friendly bag or do I take the free plastic bag from Macro yeah. and use that? And it's like, it was just an economics decision. Uh, you know, we were like, we're not going to spend money to, to, to buy the packaging. You know, let, let Macro. Well, we should, Macro, give this guy some, uh, some uh, earth-friendly packaging. <laughs> There's your donation. <laughs> <laughs> calling out calling out macro so you know we had some issues about this starting people were like oh, you should be more environmentally friendly you should limit the plastic so we just we were better to keep everything quiet and just do it everything under the radar because then it was uh, less less problematic for us um but you know like now that we uh, do it publicly we we had the public brawl about it and we stated very very honestly it's like you come and you hop in a line and you tell that person at that line that they don't have a life bag today because you spent money on an environmentally friendly bag. And everyone said, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, we understand the economics. You know, it's uh, actually, this is the funny thing, you know, I, I, my, 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 my dad's a teacher. So I did a, a presentation to the UWCT school not long ago about the, the ethics of why we made this decision. You know, why we decided that plastic was the better option over spending money on uh, environmentally friendly bags. And UWCT is a very, very environmentally friendly school and a sustainable school. And they were, after I explained the, the ethical impact and the economics of what we were doing, they're like, makes sense. We mm -hmm. don't have a better option. We'd have a, you'd keep going with the plastic. You know, like feed people is way more important right now. Let's, let's worry about the environmental cleanup later on. So, you know, it's like, these are some of the things I suppose that. Yeah, you know, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You gotta, you gotta find the balance there. And I, I think, uh, and I mean that makes sense. And I, I people, are, I don't think they're I, even for me. I wasn't even thinking about the plastic. You're just seeing, you're helping, you're feeding these families, and I think that's the, that's the meaning behind it all. It is, and it's like you know, we we gave all this this time, money, and effort. It was it was just to help people, and you know, it's like. Yeah, okay, so maybe, maybe we did hurt the environment in some ways and maybe we could have spent some money or time and effort to find a more environmentally friendly way. But at the time, it's like, it's, it's just two businesses and we're not. And, and you had to go quick too. I mean, to source that, that packaging, that product, you're adding another layer, another step, which is there's time delay of just getting the food to the families. Yeah, I, I, I just say what I do is really simple. I get a macro, I buy supply, I get it, I pack it, and yep. then I go deliver it. And as long as I keep it, those three simple steps, it's easy to do, yeah. right? 
once I start to complicate it and make it more and more and more and more steps, it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, so keep it simple. Um, and, you know, everyone says to me, oh, that's way simpler than it seems. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that is an overly simplistic view of it, but that's how we started. That's It's literally I would go to Macro, I'd buy it, I'd bring it to my house, I'd put it there, Nando and Amy and the staff would come, we'd pack it, the next day we'd go deliver it. That was, And we'd start the cycle again. Yep. You know, then that's how it all started and – that was pre-volunteers and pre-One Phuket. You know, One Phuket has allowed us to hit scale. Yes. It's allowed us to uh, bring more people in, allowed us to buy more. It's allowed us to help more. It's allowed us to get a, a, a picture of Phuket uh, out there. And, and it started to bring an international spotlight, you know, like uh, Sky News in the UK ran a story about Phuket uh, and the need here and the devastation and yeah and you had some youtubers reach out to you uh, thailand youtubers chris parker for yeah. from retired from you how, how did chris come into this how did he reach out to you how did that all come together you know chris is a great guy i love chris uh so chris hit me up on a messenger i think uh he sent me a video of uh some work he'd done in kosamoi um and so he he did a very similar life bag project in Kosamui, um, but he only did it for a day. So he's like, I, I went and did it once. And he's like, somehow he found on social media that I'd been doing this for a long time. And he's like, I'm blown away that you can even do this every single day of the week. And he's like, I want to come down and I want to give you some exposure because I think that my subscribers would A, donate, but B, you know, uh, maybe come to Phuket in the future. So uh, Chris came down and, you know, Chris uh, donated 300,000 Thai baht personally. Mm -hmm. And then off the back of his uh, YouTube video, maybe another half million baht came in. Yep. Um, so his, his economic footprint is pretty big. Uh, better, you know, I, I'm going to put this on here and hope that the hotels here in Phuket listen to it. Bigger than any hotel in Phuket. You know, this is one Just from one, one single Cana YouTuber. Canadian YouTuber. Yeah, one single Canadian YouTuber. If I take all of the donations of all the Phuket hotels yeah. to our food drive program and combine it, it's less than him. Yeah. And and why don't we pull that up? Um, because I think there's some good content on there. He went out with you for the day. Yeah. So uh, he actually first started down at Sutai. So uh, if you do pull it up, there's a little bit of footage here, I think. Yeah. Of, so let's pull that up. Uh, we're going to watch it on the screen. In post-production, it's here somewhere. Um, so you can check out Chris Parker. He is Canadian. As am I. Um, actually, we just had the Stanley Cup playoffs today. Tampa Bay won. But here's the thing, right? This is the cool part about Chris is every month he's doing this now. Um, different charity work. Different or? charity. Every month he highlights something within Thailand that is helping the locals. Yep. So he messaged me just a few days ago. He's down in Pattaya right now. He calls it his paid for program. So, Okay, one sec. We're going to pull that up full screen. Um We'll, we'll kind of, I don't know if we can hear it, but uh, what we're, is it recording now? So this is, this yeah. is, this is the, the, it's the, on. Okay. You can walk us through yeah, it. This is where we start, right? This is at Sutai packing the life bags. There's Chris. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, every Saturday, 10 o'clock, uh, volunteers come in. There's um, Nando and yeah. Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Nando gives us the space. Uh, we see all those rooms at the back are normally accommodation rooms, but they're full of supplies. Okay. So it's got all our rice, it's got all our life bag supplies, and once they're packed, the life bags go get get uh, put back in the rooms. It's all locked up. These are all volunteers here from uh, either people that Nando know, I know, Sutai know, or Wampuket know. 
they all come in, they all pack as a team. Uh, this particular day, we're packing a thousand bags. Um, and once we once we pack it all up, uh, you know, Chris is about to segue now, but uh, we pack it all up, we put it onto trucks, um, and we take it to different communities. So a thousand bags never goes to one community. Okay. Right. So we're trying to break it up and go to different communities on the island, so we can help different people. So on this particular day, we're helping four communities. Uh, one's an island community, and three are on Phuket communities. So I think uh, we're talking Tasak Pier. Do you know this uh, no. Tasak area? It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's near Bangrong. Uh, near Bangrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, no, this many. was what you guys were packing for that day. Yeah. Yeah. So we took about 200 bags from this, uh, thousand bag packs and we took it to Tasak and then we took uh, another 300 bags, I think to Phuket town. So this is the bag where, yeah, yeah. This is the bag. Uh, so we were talking the about mackerel in there and everything. Yeah. Um, as you can see, like this is all, uh, a lot of foreigners here packing. Yep. Uh, you know, interestingly pre, pre one Phuket, everyone packing was pretty much Thai. So I, I get a little bit of heat every now and then. They're like, why don't the ties help? I'm like, well, the ties carried this program for nine months. You know, yeah. uh, they were, it was only Thai people packing. Nando, I, and Amy were the only foreigners that were the, were doing mm -hmm. the packing. So, and it's, you know, I always say it's, it's part of the foreigners picking up some of the slack now to give the ties a bit of a rest, you know, my team a rest. This is whose truck here? So this is one of my staffs. Okay. Um, now you're taking off. Yep. So now there's, there's four trucks, as you can see. Yeah. So this is, you're getting close to the monument now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh. So this is, this is the pier. This is Tasak Pier. Yep. A uh, little, real little uh, community. Uh, it's a Muslim community here. Um, all centrals around this little restaurant that's right down the end of the pier. You're going to see the people that own this restaurant are also the, the Puyé Barns of the area. Um, so really, really, really nice. This is a, how, how many people are living, you think, in that, that, what, do you call it a village or? Uh, so this village is a two, 250, 250 people in this village, 250 families in this village. 250 right? families. Yeah. So uh, we gave 200 life bags that day to that village. So we're 50 short of what we, we really wanted to do to help that village, but we're always short. So. seafood. And so yeah. this is the restaurant yeah, of the, restaurant. the, uh, yeah. the, uh, the village chief. He, he's, he's owning this. Yeah. 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 So if you're watching this and you're an expat, you should come down here. The food's really, really good. What what are they cooking there? Is it just basic Thai seafood? Basic Thai seafood, yeah, and it's fresh because the fishermen of the village sell their fish to the restaurant. The restaurant cook it, yeah. so you know it's and a it's little, still it's open now. People could go check it out. Yeah, he's, they're struggling. They're really yeah. really struggling, but yeah, you can go. So guys, Tasak seafood. It's in Tasak. Go check it out. This is Kunzira. I think I talked about it earlier on in, in the, the podcast. Middle? In the middle, yeah. So. Oh, and this is the Muay Thai trainer. I know this guy. Yeah, yeah. So this is so that's her dad to the left and her brother to the right. So, oh, that's her dad. Yeah. So oh, okay. uh, Zira works. For for me but she's also family so this is like a part of zero has been running this since yeah. day one you know she's been a part of it since day one she does the packing she does the delivery she works with the village leaders and so um her dad and brother come along and help as well um so on this day it's it's like i think there's about 10 15 staff of mine involved in this um now we're segueing it this is this is a cool part. So I've seen this. Him have you play. seen? Have you seen? I've seen him play this before. Yeah, because yeah. I've trained with the Muay Thai. Uh, that guy has the most ridiculous neck. It, he is an absolute beast. <laughs> have you have you done? Yeah, yeah, I've clinched with him. There's you oh, can't yeah. move him. He's tossing me, and I'm like I'm bigger than him a bit, but like his neck does not move. He, he's rejecting me as a Muay Thai uh, client of his now. He's like, <laughs> he's, he's like, like no. you're too soft. He's yeah. like, you're, <laughs> you're too soft. Get yeah. out of here. He's like, you're never going to fight. Get out of here. Go, go trade with someone else. Yeah. And I'll, I see him. He's probably 50. You think he's pushing 50? Uh, yeah. 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 Because yeah. I see him jogging around here all the time as well. So yeah, I, I've seen this song he, he's played. 
Um, so now, now this process, you're giving it, so this is like how you set up as, as a central hub. Yes. And so this is uh, us working with a Puye barn and working with maybe some other government officials to set up a little uh, uh, safe environment where we can hand out life bags. Um, they, they come up one side, they get around, they get the life bag, they go back out. Okay. Okay. Uh, this particular area now, so we're at a Tasak now, this has moved to stop two. Uh, this stop two is uh, Lemhin. Uh, Lemhin also, again, another seaside village area. And we just saw the lady with the dry fish. She's selling that. Yeah, this selling is, that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Chris is just highlighting some of the people in the community yeah. that we're helping and also, you know, in his way, trying to push people to come into these areas to, to give business as well. Yeah, because even living in Phuket, these areas, they're quite far for us. I mean, for us to, for even me to get out there, that's probably 30 plus minutes. Yeah, but, you know, Lamhin was where I used to go. The seafood, Lamhin seafood, there's a beautiful Where spot. is Lamhin? It's past uh, Benrong? Uh, so past Boat Lagoon. So oh, go, that way. Yeah, go towards Phuket town and left-hand side. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, local pier, like a lot of my, uh, some of my staff uh, live on Coconut Island, so they take a long tail boat from Coconut Island to Lemhin, and Lemhin, they come to my pier. They, they live on Coconut Island. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. people live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of those local uh, communities that we help, actually. Is uh, there anything else in this video that we could highlight and jump towards? That? Uh, you can actually go to Coconut Island, so jump further down. So we actually jump on a boat here at uh, some point. Maybe. So, so we yeah, got to tell. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's going to. We got to tell Chris, you got to timestamp your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. He's. Yes. He's killing it. He's, he's doing really well. This part? Yeah, so, um, so here we are loading up uh, onto a boat. Now, you want to skip a little bit further down because uh, he's going to film some of the footage of us getting on the boat. Uh, as you can see, the boys are all – this is the captain in the background there. His name is uh, Nut. He, he actually lives on the island that we're going to go help. Okay. Um, so he took a long tail boat to the boat to, to get there to come help us. So now they're, they're, they're here. So this island, Coconut Island here, that's the right-hand side. That's a resort. Who's okay. that Who's that handsome guy? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I get told to take the, take the glasses off all the time. Uh, here's an interesting story. This is, uh, this is interesting about Coconut Island. That resort right-hand side normally is the number one employment place for this island. So a lot of the villagers, they all work on the resort. What's the name of the resort? Uh, Coconut Island Resort. Okay. Um, not a lot of customers right now. A lot of it's closed. So a lot of it, you can see the line here. This is a. This line is people lining up for your food. Waiting up, waiting for us to... to so the whole island is pretty much rely, reliant on that resort and maybe people, boat boat trips, day trips, people showing up. Mainly that resort, a little bit of fishing. Uh, that's it. You know, that's so, you know, when we go there, lines like this is normal because they don't have a, you know... And, and how many uh, uh, chief, uh, village chiefs are on this island? This island, just one village chief. Just one village yeah, chief. Just one village chief. But we also, uh, you know. <clears throat> Do you see the village chiefs in any of the footage or would they kind of stay away yeah, from Yeah, so it? come back. If you, you come back. Maybe actually, if you let it go forward, just roll forward a little bit more. Oh, it's probably going to, yeah. Yeah, there, there. Roll forward there a little bit more. They didn't get a go forward another 30 seconds or so. He's got to get to the end of the line and then he'll cut back to the front. Uh, so you can see the village health workers in the background there, yeah. yellow shirt, black black vest. But it's going to get to a point here. Yeah, hold it there. Stop there. Oh, just before I speak, please don't let me speak. I don't um, know. We're not going to hear it yeah. anyways. I think it, well, it would just be us talking. Oh, we're talking over it. Oh, it's good. It's good. Yeah. I, I, we won't hear the, 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 the audio from it. So uh, interesting, Brennan, what happened is because we gave for such a long period of time using just village chiefs, the village chiefs got such great respect for what we do. They started to say, other, other people in the government need to start to understand what you guys are doing. 
because you've been doing it so long, you need recognition. We're like, we, we don't, we're not doing this for recognition. And they're like, we don't care. We want you to have recognition, you know, like you should at least in some way get the governor to come and say thank you or you should get a district chief or someone that's not a Puyé Ban to come and say thank yeah. you to you. Um, so they started to drive this process with us. So left-hand side here, uh, white shirt. Uh, this is the mayor of uh, Gokgeo. Um, so here's a... Gokgeo, that's up in the north? Yeah, um, so middle, middle of Phuket. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So we have... Puye Ban, uh, then we go up, uh, is uh, kind of Orbitor and Mayor. So this is one step above. So purple shirt's Puye Ban, white shirt yeah. is the, the Mayor. Um, so this guy, he's a real, I love the Mayor. He's a really cool guy. Um, and he's done a lot, a, a, a lot to help us uh, widen the way we work in the government. So this is yeah. one of the coolest, and, and I give credit to Juan Phuket for this because I would never have ever work, stepped out of uh, working with the Puye Bans and started working with higher levels of government if uh, Juan Phuket didn't say, give us the confidence to do that. Um, and so now we're in this situation, like today I'm here, uh, but down in Phuket town, uh, my wife is with the, the, the governor with about 40 of the... Oh, I think you can keep playing it. Is it still going or no? Yeah. So she's so right now. Uh, so right now she's down in in town, and there's about forty government volunteers helping her give out today. Okay. So you see, like uh, in the expat social media, you see a lot of expats helping. But what they don't see is in the Thai social media, they see there's a lot of Thais involved in my operation, and this is uh, uh, something I've been working on now with the government is is working in a in a private business uh, government partnership. Yep. So, okay, I understand uh, in in some way some people will be upset that the government can't help more, but behind the scenes I know they don't have the funds. You know, So if I can have funding but also have easier access, have access to trucks that maybe I didn't have access to before. I think it's okay. You can cut it and cut back to us. Um, yeah, this, I, is Chris, I, this is Chris making so a donation we'll just, now. We'll plug that as well and, and we'll put this uh, – maybe we'll, we'll actually put this video at the end of this podcast so we can link to that. This is, uh, it's called An Unbelievable Story with uh, Chris Parker on YouTube, uh, Retired for You. Um, so we'll, we'll put that in at the end. And I think that that's a really interesting video to connect with this podcast as well that they can go watch. Yeah, it's good. Um, so, sorry, continue on your connections with the, the political side of things. Yeah, so now I suppose we, we've evolved our thinking to like, because uh, we're doing things at a bigger scale. Uh, you can see in the, in the video we just watched, we had four trucks going out. Yeah. Uh, but what if we had one big government truck, you know, and like a what, dump truck or, yeah, or something yeah. more industrial. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, you got to understand it's like, while, uh, we, I have a philosophy that if anyone ever gives money to one Phuket to help buy life bags, none of that money can go to paying for fuel. None of that money can go to giving food to the volunteers or coffee to the volunteers or water to the volunteers, you know, all of that is 100% of supply. So running a donation program, there's, there's, there's other costs. Mm -hmm. you know. So it's like I got four trucks worth of fuel, right? Okay, that's not a big cost, but you do that three days a week. You do that every, every week of the year. You do that for 16 months, and that starts to add up over time. What if instead of me donating that, what if the government donated that? So they have trucks. They have a budget for fuel. They have drivers. and They have uh, these... Uh, recruits uh, who are trying to go in the police force. So what if I had some of these guys coming to help pack it? Because 
you, know, you see on our Saturdays, they come and they pack a thousand bags, but then they leave. Mm. And then on Monday, I got to go deliver them. So if all the effort then comes down to myself and Nando and our team moving a thousand bags into four trucks and then moving from four trucks into a village, that's actually a lot of effort, right? And we don't have volunteers helping with that. Um, so it's, it falls back onto my team again. But what if I can involve the government in that aspect? Yeah. So, so instead of needing to have the, the expat volunteers to come and help with that part, now I've got 20 government volunteers coming to help. Okay, so th this is where I talk about, uh, you know, taking our relationship with the Puyé Bans to the next level, and they've introduced us to levels of government that allow us now to have access to these kind of things. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, when we packed 5,000 bags, the Royal Thai Navy uh, sent uh, six trucks and 40 recruits to go down and move 5,000, and this is a big effort, move 5,000 bags into trucks, and then for trucks into the community, you know, that, that's not a small feat, you know, no. that's, a, that's a big feat of, uh, of work and couldn't have done it without the government partnership, couldn't have done that without the Puyé Barnes going to the, the, the mayors, the mayors going to the district chiefs, the district chiefs going to the governor and saying, hey, these guys really deserve your help. They're not asking for money. They're not asking. Is this happening or is it going to happen? This or? is happening right now. This is happening this now. Is so this is going to scale to even another level yeah, shortly. You know, this is, uh, this is the evolution of what we're trying to do now is, uh, you know, again, I still have this belief that no matter where the money comes from, ties giving ties is way better than foreigners giving ties. I don't want that perception. I want it to be the perception of, Ties helping each other. What's the what's the your ideal goal? Like to be able to feed forty eight thousand families a day? I mean, this is pretty unrealistic. It's but, unrealistic. But do you have any goal, or is it just you know what? Let's just let's try and and try try our best. Like you're not setting yourself or putting too much pressure on yourself. You know, I get a lot of people messaging me asking me, you know, like you should register as a charity. You should do this, and what's your plan? And what and I'm like, you know, this all started out as just like two small businesses wanting to help the community. And we've never stepped back enough to to plan. You know, it's like yeah. we just struggle to keep up with where we're at. You know, like we're 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 just what what's in the bank today? You know, like what can we afford to give today? All right, that's what we're gonna go order. You know, that's what we're gonna go order, that's what we're gonna pack. Yeah, you're gonna add too much headache if you're trying to register and then create this process and deal with lawyers. I mean, you're just trying to make it simple and, and lean and just get it out the door. And again, it's like uh and it, plus it's the majority was financed by yourself. So it's not like, you know, there, there's money coming in and you have to deal with that either. So. Yeah. And again, I think, th again, I think it's like, you know, you start out with this concept of we're just going to help people and that's still authentically our message. We're just yeah. going to help people. Once I change that message to we're a charity and we want to get donations, I don't think I want to be involved in that. You know, are, I are you taking donations currently or are you kind of, you don't, you don't want to deal with that? So, uh, Personally, no, I don't take it. One Phuket is taking one donations. And that, that is something that I've been very clear about in the delineation. I don't, Five Star Marine, Sean Stenny, Nando, Sutai, we don't take donations. Yeah. Okay. If you want to donate, sure. Here's One Phuket's details. They handle donations. Uh, they do get some donations. And then sure. they'll buy the food and bring it to you. Guys. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes things a lot easier then. Again, because I don't, I don't want to sit that accountability. No. You know. I get it. Uh I just want to be really authentic about what I'm doing. It's like, I, I want to give, I want to help and I don't want to be involved in the politics of a charity. Uh, and I want to be involved in it, but you know, like I do have, you know, I did say very strongly to, to the one Phuket team and I am part of one Phuket and I sit in a core management team there and we're very particular. 
no money that they get donated goes to anything but buying supplies. Okay. You know, 100% of what they get goes straight into supplies. Everything's strictly for the supplies and, and trying to keep that lean. Yeah. And again, I think it comes down to my philosophy to start with. Let's keep everything lean. Let's put all the money into the supplies. Let's help as many people as we possibly can. And, you know, not even any, not a single bar even goes to paying fuel or, you know, like when we pack with our volunteers, we got to, we get water. Sometimes we'll get coffee. Sometimes we, like we want to make it a, an environment that's comfortable for them. Yeah. No, no donated funds go to that. That comes from me. It comes from Nando. You know, like mm -hmm. we we do that. You know, that's 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 us giving. And you know, if they see five one, five star marine boats going out, no, no donated funds go to pay for the fuel or pay for the stuff. I I do that. You so know? what what's the next step for you guys besides scaling at like uh, a government in, uh, industrial level? Is is that the next phase? I get asked this, and I. I my answer early on is there's no next step. The next step is Phuket reopens, tourists comes, and I'm no longer needed, and I go back to running my business. Do you think that this, when Phuket reopens, this uh, charity continues to operate, or does it cease to exist? My original thought is that it ceased to exist. My thought now is I've built such a great network inside the government. I've built great, such a great network inside the expat community there has to be something that we can do to help this island post this. What that is, I don't know yet. I'm, mm. not, I'm not certain on what that is. Like uh, the the one Phuket uh, have an idea around sustainability. They want to talk about trying to create more sustainability on the island. Yeah, Nando was talking about sustainability, sustainable farming, and yeah. So it's I, quite It's challenging. I, I speak very openly and say I, I don't know if that's next for me. So yeah. you know, if someone watches this and says. Well, What's next for one Phuket? Go, go, go look at one Phuket. You know, yeah. like what's next for Sean and Five Star? I think there's no way now I can go back to not being involved in some kind of charitable giving. Yeah. Um, but as to what that makes up, I don't have the space in my day right now to think about that. Yeah. You know, I, I think about uh, tomorrow I've got a, you know, today we had to receive su supply delivery. We had a team down in Phuket town handing out life bags. Tomorrow I got to go audit my supplies. I got to check it against the invoice. I got to prepare for a pack on Saturday. I got to pack Saturday. I got to deliver Saturday afternoon, Sunday deliver, Monday deliver. Tuesday I got to order, Wednesday I got to start to receive. So that's my day. Yeah, so when so, this reopens you need to go back to your day job. So yeah, yeah you're not going to be able to do this anyways. So I, I just think who would you pass it to? And yeah, unless yeah. it's passed on to a charity or one Phuket takes it over and your your brand or your name is behind it. Yeah, so certainly I think on some point I want to use, uh, <laughs> I speak openly, in some way I, the the government realizes all we've done and they want to do something yeah. to help us. Uh, and I want that to be the next step of what I do. And that's going to be something to help maybe a charity on the island that's existing. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's to help one Phuket, maybe it's help Phuket has been good to us. Maybe it's helped Good Shepherd. There's a whole great lot of great charities on the island. I'm not certain I want to start another charity because I don't think that the island needs another charity. But maybe an existing charity, maybe I need to go and see what I can do using the networks mm -hmm. I've got to help them. Um, because to walk away and not use that influence, I think that is, and not use that network, you know, yeah. like. It's been 16 yeah, months. Uh, we were talking before. We're we're starting a charity, but it's very slow because we're 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 doing too many things. But eventually, in our 
pipeline. We we want to do like a Muay Thai Youth Foundation, and actually, I'm working that with Nando. Um, it's very early. I'm talking maybe a year from now or more. Um, hopefully within a year. Um, but we will be uh, doing some sort of a charity that takes donations that goes directly into the the owners' pockets at the gym. That they're using that money to bring on um, the youth into their gyms to pay for their education, food, clothing, and to also, we were talking about getting money back to their families back home because that's the whole reason that they come to train. I know it's sad, but the, they, they're going to do it anyways. So I think the, you know, the, 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 the next, for me, I think the next evolution of what, what we do, Nando and I do in the charity will, will just naturally show up like it has for us right now. You know, yeah. like this has been a very organic thing. You know, we haven't pushed it. It's kind of like how I started my private boat business. It just organically grew and I went with it, you know, and the charity work has kind of organically grown and we've gone with it. You know, like uh, two weeks ago, uh, the uh, found the, the, the managers of the Phuket has been good to us. Charity came to us and said, hey, uh, uh, a couple of our teachers need a letter from the governor to help them to uh, get their work permit renewed. Can you help? I'm like, course I, I can help you know so that's a natural movement forward you know mm -hmm. so we just use our network and call and say hey can you help this charity they get the letter they need the work permits come through that charity now can go and teach 200 kids for the next uh year yeah. and i'm like if if stuff like that that's an organic growth of of what we're doing it's like if you came to me and say i'm going to run a muay thai thing i need a, a an event pass i need some government approval i need some health officers i need this and that i'm like we have the network to do that yeah you know, that's, like, we'll figure it out yeah. yeah you know we can move the network to do that and i think like the organic growth of what we will be doing is like we won't be a charity per se we just might be behind the scenes helping yep. charities with the network we've got but you've created the foundation those those parts are put into place which i mean that's the time consuming aspect of any charity uh, it's running now the wheel's spinning if someone else is wearing the hat it's not the end of the world. And again, you know, Nando and I never did this because we wanted to be known as charitably giving people, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, we did it because we wanted to do it. And I think we're just going to keep doing something, but as to what that is, once the need for life back goes away, I don't know. Well, I think let, let's end that on a, on a high note. I think that was, <laughs> we probably done about two hours plus. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, that's, that's good. I think we got, we, we got a lot of excellent uh, information in there. What we'll do next is, uh, this is not uh, what is it? This is not hot wings. I'm not going to tell you to look at all three cameras, but uh, if you want to talk to this camera and tell the audience um, where they can find you, you might as well plug one Phuket. So they love it. Love you at the end of this where, um, and if someone wants to volunteer their time, how they can reach out, just plug away at this camera. Yeah. So I think, uh, Firstly, if you'd like to find out like what we're doing in, in terms of community, uh, One Phuket does a really great job of uh, showing what's happening in the community. So go to their Facebook. It's a group. So you just go to Facebook, join the One Phuket group. Uh, every Saturday, uh, 10 o'clock, Sutai, uh, we do our donation packing then. Uh, you don't need to message me and let me know that you're coming. Just turn up. Uh, more the hands are merrier. Uh, I always say to anybody that, the more people we have helping pack, the less each individual person has to do and makes it less of a burden, makes it more of a, and it's great energy. Come to the gym, you're going to feel some, some really great community spirit and that's what I want you to see. You know, that's what I'm really proud of is that community spirit. Um, 
So, you know, on the, on the charitable giving side of things, I think, you know, we want to get the Facebook group, uh, come to the gym, uh, help us out on a Saturday. You want to see what we're doing as a company, um, five star Marine on Facebook or, uh, your Instagram handle. Yeah. Is, uh, I didn't even know that <laughs> five, five star Marine, but we'll, we'll post it there. It will virtually appear, It'll virtually appear yeah, somewhere. Yeah. 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 yeah uh, I'm horrible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah. gotcha. So, um, yeah. So that, that's pretty much it for the episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to watch the full video on YouTube, come visit our channel fruiting body podcast. We can also be found on Instagram at fruiting body podcast. Please be sure to share and follow this podcast with friends and family. Thank you very much.